the following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Gentlemen, welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WZWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California in Fury. What a joy to be with you all once again. I've got myself a ice cold German lager here with me, or Pilsner to be precise, and uh, very excited at this time to introduce our guest here. You know, he is infamous. He is well-known within the genre of, of professional wrestling that he was a part of for so many years. Unser Gast ist wunderbar. He is the one and only Thumbtack Jack. How are you, my friend? Hey, deine introduction war wunderbar. That was pretty good, man. Well said, well said. Thank you for the high praise. No worries, my friend. And uh, we, we're so excited to talk to you here today. Um, we, we feel like you, you have a career that's so interesting and different from a lot of people out there that we've had on the show already. Um, but as usual, the, the first question on the show is, when you were a young man, how did you become a wrestling fan? Well, it was one stormy night. I was like five years old and just like flipping through the channels with my mother I remember there was like a rainstorm going on and I saw this guy with these bright pants and flashy outfit. It was El Matador, Tito Santana. <laughs> and I was immediately drawn to it. Like for me, what did it was really like the comic book as aspect of like the, the outfits, the presentation, the larger than life type characters. So yeah, that's like my first memory with wrestling. And I just, you know, stuck with it ever since. Right, awesome. Yeah, no, it, it, that seems to really catch a lot of people's eye. You know that the how larger than life and flashy it was. I, for me, it was seeing uh, Ron Simmons hit a double clothesline on on two men. I, I jumped out of my seat. So I, I, the the larger than life aspect really is a big part of it. Um, so I, you're born in 1985. So this would have been 1990. Uh, so. You, you become a fan of wrestling when, you know, it's kind of more of the that, that WrestleMania era that that uh, characters, WWF, uh, as time wears on and you grow up to become, you know, towards being a teenager, when did ultra-violent style or like hardcore wrestling, uh, how did that first come into your life and and what was it that grabbed you from that genre? Yeah, hardcore wrestling started popping up on my radar in the late 90s. I want to say like around 1998, probably. And you mentioned I was born in 1985. So I was the perfect age to be a WWF fan back in the day. You know, at first I was a fan of like the Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man and Hulk Hogan. And then like it segued into the technical wrestlers like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. So those started becoming my favorites. And once they hit the Attitude Era, I had matured as well. Like I was maturing at the same speed as WWE's presentation was. So they had like some hardcore influences, you know, with Cactus Jack and whatnot and Terry Funk and Hell in a Cell in 1998. We all remember that. But yeah, man, dude, like it was the mid 90s, uh, late 90s, early days of the internet. And I just remember like 
ending up on a website where they had a list just with a few pictures of Japanese death matches with like all these wild stipulations, like stuff being blown up and what they have a match with like a tank with a crocodile inside a tank and the loser like has to wrestle the crocodile and whatnot. It was the craziest stuff. And the thing that was so fascinating to me, I guess, people don't understand understand it these days. This was the early days of the internet. You couldn't watch all of that. So for a face, I want to say like for probably the first year or so, hardcore wrestling, it was on my radar. And it was so, so interesting because I couldn't see it. Like all I had were glimpses, just like still shots. Wow. So did you ever get involved in tape trading to finally get your hands on this stuff? Well, when was the first time you finally got that tape? You stuck it in the VHS and you watched it for the first time. Please tell us about that. Yeah, that was probably 1999, I would say. I did some tape trading back then um, until like the early 2000s. VHS tapes, people, some people <laughs> will still remember those. But yeah, man, especially me living in Europe and you can relate, you know, with you guys living in Australia. It took a while to get that content. It wasn't like today where you can watch it live or you can watch it the next morning or whatever. Like you would have to wait for this type of content sometimes for like half a year. So um, that's why I probably don't remember the first thing that I watched because like once I started watching, I was just like trying to grab everything and watch everything that I could get my hands on. But like the first early memories were like Hayabusa with the exploding barbed wire cage or um, yeah, some stuff in, in ECW, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, it is interesting because I'm born in 1987. Jack's a bit younger than both of us, but I didn't even know ECW existed until like the year 2000. And they'd already been around like seven, eight years at that point. So I, I just I think it's really cool that we have that comparison. Uh, Jack, you, you can take it away with our next uh, round. Sure. Uh, so obviously you've uh, been tape training for, uh, for those couple of years there. You were such a big fan of uh, professional wrestling sort of growing up. When did you sort of uh, take the or make the decision to decide, hey, this is uh, something I want to actually do myself? <laughs> Way too early. I started at a very young age. I started training wrestling when I was 15. And a few days after my 16th birthday is when I had my first match. I had my first death match that was labeled as a death <laughs> match at, you know, at the age of 18, just a few days after my 18th birthday. So the, the way you phrased it was interesting because you said, like, when did I make the decision? I never really made that decision. It just happened. You know, I just... Oh, yeah stumbled into my wrestling career because I was so young. Like I, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And this was the early 2000s. I started in 2001. This was like the wild west days of European wrestling. It was not professional the way it is these days. You know, if you watch all the British promotions or dubbing stuff on the WWE network, it didn't look like that back then. It was really, it was the wild west and nobody had a clue what they were doing. And, you know, it, it just happened to be something that I was good at and that worked for me and I stuck with it. And all of a sudden, you know, it came time to uh, choose a name for your first match. <laughs> well, we want to back a, uh, just, just a little bit there. Cause I want to talk about uh, sort of uh, your training uh, process and who, who trained you and um, how that uh, process was at, I believe it was the XCW school. 
XCW was one of those. That's a promotion that probably nobody outside of Germany has ever heard of. And like even wrestling fans within Germany have never <laughs> yeah. heard of it or have forgotten about it. It was like a local <laughs> thing over here in Bavaria. I live in the south of Germany. I had various trainers, um, nobody of real fame. Uh, I want to give credits to Big Sick Ben. That's the guy that I learned the most from. And he was a student of Chris Heroes. So that's really how it worked over here. Like you would have various trainers, or at least like I had, and a few of the other guys of my generation did. And you would try to do seminars as much as possible. You know, whenever there was like a foreigner, a star from the US or somewhere working your show, um, you would try to like work a seminar with them prior to the show. Guys like Mike Quackenbush or Chris Hero or B-Boy, these guys, you know, like... And but the best experience is really just just doing it, doing it in the ring. So yeah, yeah, definitely, man. And of course, you had your um, you had you just said then that you had a few matches uh, way too early. Uh, so how was um like those matches? We don't have any information on where or who the opponents were, uh, but we did want to actually. I did want to touch on those and just uh, ask how how were you feeling sort of going into those matches after those matches, being at such a young age. I mean, that would be obviously the mindset going into those matches would be a lot different to how obviously you are, you know, as an as a, an adult. Um, so being, you know, 14, 15, 16, wrestling your first matches, how did that feel? And was that a, um, was that nerve wracking at all? The first one especially was so nerve wracking. Like I was a mess the day of the show, but once I realized that the rest of the card wasn't like really stacked with any stars and it was just like a random show yeah. somewhere in Berlin, not a big promotion or anything because we didn't have any big promotions back then. So yeah, in, in the early days, I did a lot of battle royals, Royal Rumble type matches, but um, yeah, having like the first singles matches uh, was definitely nerve wracking. I remember though, like early 2002, um, starting to get more and more matches with Dubik Stub that would be regular matches, not just battle royals, but like actual matches. Um, that's when it started to click with me because that was such a unique crowd back then with WXW. They always had the thing where they had the fans around ringside and that really helped me. Like I had a connection with the WXW fan base very early on and I was totally lacking, you know, um, I, I, I was just lacking, you know, uh, faith in myself and in my yeah. skills because I, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was a young guy just like trying this and getting the positive reaction from, from the dubbing stop fan base that really helped me in the early days to, you know, build up my self-esteem. Awesome, man. That's cool. <clears throat> I haven't actually uh, watched too much uh, WXW stuff, but I'm also uh, always interested to um, check out a lot of our European wrestling, particularly from, um, you know, back in that day, because I've always liked the aesthetic of it. <clears throat> a lot of it looks very grungy. And I've always liked that. That's something that always um, interests me is the aesthetics of a uh, wrestling show. But over to you, Carl. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, talking about Westside Extreme Wrestling, um, you, you, your early days there, you, you you become their hardcore champion twice. I know a few years down the line, you also won a Gore Fest 2, the tournament. Um, one thing in my research that I found very interesting was on the 19th of April, 2003, at an ex... At, XWX event called God Eggs. You defeat DNA, Mad Cow, and the Sandman of all people to win the Hardcore Championship. Um, what was it like uh, going out there and at that point in your career and, and being in the ring with someone like the Sandman? 
It's funny that you're bringing up that match because that was the night where it clicked for me. Wow. Because the Sandman, he was easy to work with and he was an experienced guy and he was the first like really experienced guy from abroad that I was ever put in the ring with. And at first I was like super nervous, but once the match started, like he showed me a whole new style of working, which was just like doing stuff on the fly. And he was the first guy I wrestled with that was good calling stuff in the ring. And that just built up my confidence because I realized like, oh, wait a minute, this guy is more experienced than me. So whatever, like if, if I mess up something, he will cover up for it and uh, people wouldn't even notice. So yeah, that really helped me like being in the ring with him for the first time. And then like a year later, they put me in the ring with Raven, who's also one of these, you know, ECW guys. You got to keep in mind, like this was 2003, 2004. Yeah. That's not too long after ECW died. So those guys still had a lot of momentum, you know, Sandman yeah. and Raven. And both were so super easy to work with. Yeah. Excellent. That's great to hear. I, I'm so glad that I threw that in there when I was looking at your match history. I was like, oh, got to ask about the Sandman. Uh, can, so, I, can I actually like tell you about one spot in the yeah, match with Sandman? Sure. Because like, if I want to pinpoint the exact moment when it clicked for me was I was doing a moonsault off the top rope onto him. And it, like in my head, the whole thing, the whole scene was playing kind of like in slow motion. And I remember like midair in flight, looking down on him, looking looking at his face. And he said, he looked up at me and said, while I was flying, nice moonsault, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I realized like, oh, okay, like you can talk while doing all these moves. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, that's that great. Man. That's great. <laughs> People don't give enough credit for actually how good he can be. Yeah, absolutely. Like, bro. People just look at him sort of like on the outside and they're like, oh, just a drunk in the ring wrestling. It's just like, he's, he's so much no. more than that, man. He's provided so much good shit. Absolutely, bro. Um, uh, so WXW, obviously a very big part of your early career, big part of your life. Um, this is quite a broad question considering you spent a lot of time there, but what are your fondest memories when you look back on your time in that company? Oh, that's a great question, mate. Um, one of my fondest memories is when I had to take a break in late 2004, because I was getting into the last two years of my um, studies, like in school, in high school. And um, so I needed to take a break from wrestling to concentrate on that. And the fans knew, like, they were smart to it and they knew what was going on, like, in our private lives and whatnot. It was like a close community, the wrestlers and the fans back in those days. And I remember after working that last show um, where I knew I was going to take a break, walking out of outside of the venue afterwards, and they gave me a standing ovation while I was leaving the venue. The show was long over. That was quite special. And it would always be like these interactions with the fans at WXW, you know, just like the, the respectful nature of them and... Um, yeah, even to my, you know, like if I want to fast forward to the end of my career being inducted into the Dubbixdub Hall of Fame, um, it was a sad occasion because it happened because of an injury, but just the reception from the audience, 
you know, Dubbix Dub, like really, it used to be like this great exchange of energy. And like, as I guess it's going to be the same once like the pandemic is truly over. And that's remarkable. Like, um, I cannot stress this enough. Like uh, people who have never been at a Dubbix Dub event, it's it's just like this this unique ball of energy that excites both the wrestlers and the audience. Wow, that's awesome, man. Uh, hopefully when I get to go back over to Germany one day, I'll get to check it out myself. Germany is my favorite country in the world, by the way. Um, Where have you been and when have you been to Germany? Uh, 2019, I went over to the, uh, go to the Wacken Heavy Metal Festival. Uh, right. So I spent a lot I of time. I wrestled there once as well. Oh, really? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I didn't talk about that. They, they, oh. Back in the days, they had like this big tent at Wacken, kind of like a circus tent, and they would have wrestling there. So yeah, I did that in 2010. That was fun. Oh, wow. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time in a small town called Vincent and uh, also uh, spent some time in Berlin and Hamburg. So um, yeah, I, and it was summertime. So the sun didn't go down to like 11 o'clock at night. It was amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, talking about deathmatch, uh, I wanted to ask you, how would you, if, if there is a comparison to make, but how would you compare like European deathmatch style to American deathmatch style? That's an interesting spin on the question. Hmm. Well, in the early days of the wild west, uh, we didn't have a style yet, um, I, I, I think, you know, like, especially with me, I'm just going to speak for myself here. Um, there is a lot of European influence to the way I wrestle. And people oftentimes don't necessarily see that or think of that because they are like, oh, he's just a deathmatch guy. Like, he cannot wrestle, blah, the whole old cliche. But um, probably, you know, like, a little more snug sometimes than some guys in the U.S., and you know, just just like the European mentality, it's hard to it's hard to describe in words how. But, but do you know what I mean? Like the European wrestling style in general, not just deathmatch yeah. wrestling. Like it's, it's it's own unique style. It's it's a unique pace. It's it's still pretty old school if you compare it to other styles. It doesn't need to be flashy. Ilya and Walter, take them. Like they are the best example of the European snug style, and. Um, yeah, I think for me, like, especially when I made the jump to the US eventually, what was really important for me was to differentiate myself by not doing the things the American way of bigger, higher, faster, getting more and more extreme, but quite the opposite. Like, I, I wanted to kind of like rewind a little and, you know, end my matches with a finishing move because at the end of the day, it's still a wrestling match. So I'm going to end it with a wrestling move rather than with the biggest stunt of the night. <laughs> and um, that was actually something that made me very happy. Like when I had made the jump to the US and then I would see that more and more guys would adapt that psychology after working with me where they realized like, oh, little or, or less can be more if you do it right. And you do not need to end every match with a big stunt, you know? Interesting. So, uh, thank you for the insight there. Um, uh, another match I want to bring. I've only got a couple more before I throw it back to Jack. But one other match I thought was interesting uh, to bring up was on the 11th of March 2007. A few years further down the line, you work with uh, <laughs> you work with Drake Younger for uh, Westside Dojo in uh, Hessen, Germany. Um, 
please, he's an interesting fellow. Uh, how did you find working with him? I loved it. Um, you need to ask him the story because I like the way he always tells it out of his perspective because I was the one who had the idea for this infamous Saw Death match. And in a way, it was a stupid thing to do, you know, with the razor blades and the syringes. At the same time, it's the thing that put me on the map because, you know, it started circulating online. It was not like overnight, quite the opposite, but because still like this was 2007. It's not like you could see the match the next day on YouTube. I think what really helped us with the Saw Deathmatch and like the whole aura of this infamous type of match is that people were not able to see it for two or three weeks. It took a couple of weeks before people in the US could see it. And in the meantime, before that happened, hype built up on the message boards because all they had, since it happened in Germany, the fans in the US only had like written descriptions of the match. And they were like, am I reading that right? <laughs> Those guys bumped into syringes, piles of syringes. They hit each other with a razor blade chair. At one point, the one guy drilled the other guy in the forehead with a drill with a power drill are you kidding me <laughs> so people couldn't wait to get their hands on it and by the time they got their hands on it they already had so much expectation that i think that really helped us and yeah it, it's funny with drake because i pitched the idea um, to dubbix dub and they um you know asked drake if he wanted to do it and i got in touch with him and you know i just like sent him a regular random email describing okay hey um looking forward to be working with you so i have a few ideas so we could do like syringes like piles of syringes you know and like like a razor blade chair and this and that and at first he thought that i was kidding and it's so funny to me like when he talks about it he's like yeah i i thought the guy was joking crazy german guy he's trying to rip me like well, come on like what are we really gonna do and then I, like in the second email he realized I was being serious. I was like, no, no, like I have this idea of doing something completely unique outside the box, you know? <laughs> Fuck. It's amazing. That is. When you say that, it's almost like when you were a fan and you couldn't watch these Japanese death matches or you got with pictures. It's the same thing, the same feeling. That's why they, they were so keen to know what was going on. Oh, I never <laughs> thought of it that way, but you're right. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Wow. What a, what a like a, a, a full circle kind of story right there. Um, <laughs> another interesting match that I wanted to bring up because it's quite topical for what's going on today. The 4th of October 2008 at WXW True Colors, you wrestled Kenny Omega in a Falls Count Anywhere match in uh, at the uh, Turbinen Hall in Alberhausen, Germany. Uh, yeah. Oberhausen, sorry. Um, I'll, I'll get there with the pronunciation. Uh, please, what was it like working with Kenny Omega? Uh, that's fantastic that you brought up this memory because I almost had forgotten about that. Yeah, right. I did wrestle Kenny Omega. It was fun because they gave us some creative freedom where it was just like a, a loose type of stipulation. It wasn't like a gimmick match. It was just like a no rules type of thing. Do whatever the fuck you want. So at one point we wrestled like in the in the uh, bathroom and like where all the toilets are and the stalls and whatnot. And he came out of the bathroom like with toilet paper sticking out of his trunks and whatnot. And we did some comical stuff, but also like some of the more creative 
um, hardcore type stuff. It was not a death match by any means, just like, you know, a few random gimmicks here and there. And what I remember about wrestling Kenny, it's funny because this was after he was already like in the WWE developmental system and he had left that. That was no fun for him. And at this point in my career, 2008, I was at a point where I was confident just, you know, freestyling and calling it on the fly. And I remember we were the second match on the card and we were running out of time preparing for our match. So all of a sudden our referee comes storming backstage and he's like, Kenny, Alex, you guys are next. And we didn't even have a finish yet. And like, I, I could tell like Kenny, that's back in 2008, you know, he was not the same performer that he is now. I could tell that he was kind of nervous about that and like, uh, we don't have a finish. Shit, shit, what are we going to do? And I was actually the one calming him down, being like, mate, we're just going to call it in the ring. It's going to be fine. We're, we're going to do whatever. We're, we'll figure something out. And we did. So, uh, yeah, those are my memories of wrestling Kenny Omega. But he was super easy, man. Like, he was smooth and light as a feather. Um, he was, like, so crisp back then, even with everything that he was doing. It was a joy. It, it, it was a day off. Excellent, excellent. And before I throw it to Jack, I, I thought of this just before we uh, started recording, um, because in my research, I couldn't find anything about this. But uh, it, to me, it seemed like surely this happened. Did you ever wrestle in Japan? I did not. It's funny because I had an offer to wrestle in Japan. They, they offered me to do that in late 2010. And it just happened to be that I had just broken my spine. But that news had not traveled to Japan yet. So what they wanted to do is have me wrestle Jun Kasai at their big Christmas show. You know, that's oh one of the biggest big Japan shows of the year, maybe the biggest. So they wanted Kasai and me in the main event. And at the time, you know, I remember uh, one of the promoters from Dub, he told me, and, you know, this was like three weeks or so after having like broken my spine, which was an injury that forced me to end my career. And the promoter walked up to me, Felix, and he was like, dude, like, I was thinking about this. Should I even tell you? But Japan asked if they can book you. And at first I was heartbroken, but like afterwards, and it kind of like gives me goosebumps talking about it right now. Um, it's one of those things, it, like wrestling in Japan was not my biggest career goal, but it would have definitely been a very nice to have, you know what I mean? And the fact that they offered it is just as good as if I would have gone there, if I would have went there. It just happened to be I was injured, I was freshly retired, and that didn't work out. But fact remains, they wanted to fly me over. So to me, that still counts as, you know, Japan wanted to book me. It just never happened. But sometimes, you know, like... I love that with wrestling and even with my own career, like sometimes if there are dream matches that never happened, like June Kasai against Thumbtack Jack in 2010, we were both pretty much at our prime back then. That could have been fantastic and it would have been. So it's it's just going to remain a dream. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Bro. I met him I just... once, though. In pardon, uh, but I met him once in 2015. I, I remember that, like, because I went to Japan uh, visiting Matt um, Nick Mondo, who was living yep. in Tokyo at the time, 
And uh, yeah, I talked to Kasai after one of his shows over there. So yeah, at least I got to, you know, shake hands with him. And like, I, I took a picture of both of us <laughs> in like fighting stance, like a promotional picture for the dream match that never was, you know? <laughs> uh, absolutely, bro. I just, I just was thinking to myself, uh, how did uh, Thumbtack Jack never wrestle in big Japan? But uh, it, it is what it is. And, and you know what? It's, it's good to know that it's not a regret of yours, that it still feels nice that they wanted to have you over there. Um, over to you, Jack. Yep. Um, I actually just wanted to uh, touch then. So how actually was it? Um, so you never got to actually experience wrestling in Japan, but you were over in uh, Japan. So how was the experience like um, being able to actually, were you actually at any sort of shows over there and you got to uh, witness them in person and all that sort of stuff and be in the atmosphere? I didn't watch a wrestling show. Like I went to a wrestling show, but just like once it was done to just hang oh, yeah, with yeah. the guy afterwards, like in the parking lot. But Japan was so interesting. I'm so glad that I went on this trip. This was like very spontaneously. Like yeah. I remember hitting up Matt and I was like, dude, what are you doing like the next one or two weeks? Like I'm thinking about flying to Japan like in two or three days. So it was just like I might made up my mind and two or three days later I flew to visit him. And um, I don't want to say it was a culture shock because I think that's that's a phrasing that has such a negative connotation, like, oh, I was culture shocked. Everything was so different. Well, everything was different, but it was a pleasant experience. Yeah. Just like things that you wouldn't think of, things that you don't know about a country unless you go there and visit it. So for me, one of the interesting things about Japanese culture was just how very well structured they are and organized. And the thing, the word I should use is, Japanese people want everything to be predictable. Yeah. Japanese people hate nothing more than things being unpredictable. And it goes as far as, I don't know, like you're walking down the street somewhere like near a river. There's not a whole bunch of people. And there's like a Japanese person. Like you can see them on the horizon. It's like a few, the person's like a few hundred meters away. But even like with a few hundred meters distance, you and a Japanese person, you would already have to make up your mind who's going to walk on the right side, who's going to walk on the left side to make sure that we don't bump into each other, because that would be like embarrassing. That would yeah. be like an unpredictable thing, which, you know, like in the US, if you bump into someone on the streets, you're just like, oh, mate, sorry, whatever. And you don't think about it. But for Japanese people, something like that, something small like that would be an embarrassment. And I, I, I thought that was so, so, so very fascinating. Yeah, that would be so fascinating because I like, even like I can imagine like Australia um, in Germany, like Carl, you could probably answer this for me. Like they're both very sort of casual in that sense, right? Um, yeah, they are. Yeah. And, uh, and the thing about Australia, because that's another one of those things like you don't know unless you go there and experience the country. And I was lucky enough. I went to Australia twice and the second trip was long. Like that was a six week trip where I toured all around Australia. I say toured as if I wrestled there. I didn't. It was just my free time. I just like <laughs> drove from from A to Z uh, all over the place. And one thing about the the Australian culture is like and you're not aware of this, the no worries mentality that that is unique to us Germans because like we, we're Germans you know like there's the stereotype of we are so very well organized and we are well-oiled machines and you know we are a good workforce and whatnot and like people in Australia are kind of like not the opposite but just different where they are like yeah if it doesn't happen today mate it might happen tomorrow or never whatever no worries 
don't worry about <laughs> it. Don't worry about a thing. That Which, is you know, like, can be nice um, for for me, like as a German to just like be in another culture where people are just like so much laissez faire and whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, for sure. I, I definitely want to come back to this conversation later in the uh, in the show. I know that we do want to touch nice. um, a lot on your uh, travels, especially over here in uh, Perth and Western Australia and all these places <laughs> around here. So um, I'm going to take it next. So we've got the um, IWA East Coast Masters of Pain uh, on the 29th of November, 2008. Uh, so I'm assuming this was your first, uh, was this your first trip over to the States? Yes, it was. And it happened very spontaneously. <laughs> so take us through how that happened then. It seems like a lot of these things were like all last minute uh, things, which make it actually uh, be much more special to me. A guy got injured in St. Lane. Uh, he was supposed to wrestle, uh, which became my slot in the tournament. He got injured. And three weeks before the show, Madman Pondo hit me up and he was like, do you want to work Masters of Pain? And I was like, Yes. Of course I do. And I had just given Madman Pondo a tape of mine. At this time, it was a DVD. So we had gone from VHS to DVDs in 2008. And I had handed him like my no ropes barbed wire match with the Drake Younger, which I had just had in Germany in 20, in 2008. And yeah, Pondo saw that match. He liked it. He booked me. And uh, I didn't know that I was going to go over in the tournament until I landed. So I just assumed, cool, like I'm wrestling in the tournament. That's nice. Thanks for having me. And then I arrive at the airport and like we take the car ride to Pondo's place. And like he looks at me all serious and he's like, you know, you're going over tomorrow, right? And I was like, <laughs> good rip, man. Good rip. And he was like, no, no, seriously, you're going over. I'm going to make you a star tomorrow. Oh, man. And I was like, oh, that that's why I'm here. Cool. Man, that, that would be, oh, that would be one of those moments you just like, pinching my dreaming but after all that you know now you're in america <laughs> yeah. in the states man you've, you've come all that way you know you've been 14 15 16 years old wrestling in the wild west now you're out here at uh, iwa east coast masters of pain and now you've been told by madman pondo himself you're going over tomorrow man that'd be a crazy feeling so we do, we do want to talk yeah. about that tournament i mean the first round was a david jones locker room match uh, i don't know what, what type of match that is no um, idea i didn't know either <laughs> until i showed up there the funny thing is like pondo had just like briefed me very brief uh, very briefly like he had just given me like a three-line email with the stipulations of matches and i was like davy jones locker room match what is that and i asked him like oh yeah it's like something with fish hooks and whatnot and um <laughs> so on is. the flight to the us not having an idea of what the match was actually going to look like i came up with all these spots and when i arrived there at the building they had taken down the ropes replaced the ropes with fishing wire oh and on that fishing wire they had fish hooks hanging that's not what i had envisioned no. so i was like oh it's like a no rope barbed wire type of match but like with fishing nets and uh, fish hooks and fishing lines and whatnot okay like i can throw away the whole match that i came up with on the flight here so we're gonna have to do something different but yeah that was a joy man work in pondo was just always so super easy and i love the guy to this day you know for trusting in me and having faith in me and wanting to put me over you know if it would not have been for him and his smartness um i would not have become a big star on the you know us indie deathmatch scene so um yeah that was that, that was a cool night man and the other rounds too second round i wrestled the necro butcher 
This is 2008. Dude, he had so much fame from working the movie The Wrestler with Mick yeah. Rourke. So now I'm wrestling the Necro Butcher. Whoa. And like he was super fun to work with and also a super very smart guy, just like the way the tournament was set up. That's one thing I got to say, like in general about Pondo's tournaments, in my opinion, me as a fan, those are by far my favorite types of deathmatch tournaments. The ones that he promotes because every single match has a stipulation and it's not like every match is a clusterfuck. With yeah. most deathmatch tournaments, you will see that pretty much every match is just like a light tube clusterfuck. Fans bring the weapons, bunch of light tubes. The ring is just like cluttered with junk. And with this tournament, like every match was different. And, you know, less is more. That's that's all I can say about that. And yeah, in the finals, I wrestled Ryuji Ito from Big Japan. And uh, that was such a cool experience because he barely spoke any English. So we <laughs> couldn't really call anything. And I remember like before the match, um, they had to set up something. We did like electrified light tubes for the final, yeah. which was quite unique. And I remember like the Pondo actually asking me, do you guys need more time to talk over your match? Like we can give you another 10 or 15 minutes. We can just like slow down the process of setting up the finals. And I was like, nope, we don't need no more time. There's like no point to, to call anything because there's just such a huge language barrier. We have to go out there and call it on the fly, which is what we did. And with wrestling being such a universal language, you know, you can have a guy from Germany and you can have a guy from Japan wrestling in the US. We don't have to call a whole lot of stuff. We just like do our craft, which we've learned. And, you know, like these are the types of matches that I personally prefer and this goes back to what we discussed earlier with the European style of, you know, being fine, just calling something on the fly. It doesn't have to be like an organized spot fest where every everything is choreographed, but just let, let it happen organically. Just like go out there and see what happens. And that's what happened that night. And at the end, I was the master of pain. Uh, it's such, such a good like, oh, you're defeating Necro Butcher, Maban Pondo and Ryuji Ito. I think I can't, I'm so bad with these Japanese names, but that, that's a pretty stack. No, you got it. Oh, there we go. You <laughs> that, done well pretty, there, Jack. <laughs> thank you. You know, I'm normally bad by pronunciation. Um, <clears throat> that's a pretty stacked like list of guys right there to beat in one night, especially. Um, something I do have in my mind though, and this could be just completely killing the gimmick, but um, electrified light shapes, is that cosmetic or is it actually, you know, uh, got a bit of a bit more of a kick to it than the regular light shape? Well, you gotta watch the match, and if you watch the match, you're gonna see it has more of a kick. There we go. <laughs> we have to find it, Jack. We have to find it. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll actually, I could probably. I'm sure. I'm sure it's on IWTV. I'll go look it up. I'll actually. I'm gonna go watch it tonight. Um. So a couple of interesting questions here. Uh, for especially from a deathmatch wrestler's perspective, uh, what is the atmosphere like the morning of a deathmatch tournament? Do you feel a little more nervous going into those, or um, compared to you, not regular night where you're gonna be wrestling just the one match? That is a great question. That reminds me of the morning of my first tournament of death, because that night, basically the entire locker room spent the night at one guy's place. John Dama, he had a big house and everybody was crashing at his house. So it was like 25 or 30 people, like just sleeping everywhere. <laughs> and yeah, the morning you wake up and it's, it's, it's the weirdest calm before the storm. Especially if you talk to the other guys and some of them you're going to wrestle, but everyone has the same feeling like, okay, in less than 12 hours, 
all of us are going to be so hurt, some more than others. And, you know, things happened at that tournament of death at the end in the finals, me wrestling against Nick Gage, him injuring himself, gushing blood from his armpit, having, you know, been taken to the hospital in a helicopter and whatnot. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a unique, it's a unique thing, you know. I always say this, the, the thing with deathmatch wrestling that's the hardest is actually the preparation, the mental mm. preparation. This is going to sound weird, but bear with me. Doing the spots and doing the matches, that's actually the quote-unquote fun part. And I'm not saying this because the pain is fun. It's not. The pain sucks. I don't like pain. Most people don't like it, but it's just, you know, like a sacrifice that we do in these uh, death matches. But um, that's the easy part. That is so much easier. Doing the spots is so much easier than mentally preparing for it. Because with me and with most guys, like everybody who's a smart deathmatch wrestler will only do spots that you are um, comfortable with. Spots where you feel like, okay, I got this. Like we can do this without anybody getting injured. As in, you know, you're going to have some cuts on your body, but that doesn't really count as an injury unless, you know, like you're gushing blood from your armpit. But um, cuts are all right, but we don't want anybody to get seriously injured. So, you know, all the spots I ever did in deathmatch wrestling, I haven't done one single spot that I was afraid of. And all the guys who are good at deathmatches don't do anything that they are afraid of. Because if you're afraid, that's, that's just going to like, um, it's going to make it more likely that you're going to get hurt. Yeah. Because maybe you're going to overthink some things and you want to be concentrated. And, um, you know, I think that's why you rarely have any serious injuries happening in death matches. Because like with the big spots, guys are so concentrated on what they are doing. You know, like you want to pull this off without hurting yourself, without hurting your opponent. But getting there mentally before the match where you come to a, a sense of peace with what you're about to do, that is so hard, especially with something like Tournament of Death. Because, yeah. you know, before the tournament, I haven't called the second round match. I haven't called the finals. All I'm concentrating on is the first round. I got to get through the first round. And okay, so like I'm going to get stabbed in my face with syringes through my cheeks. I'm going to get powerbombed off the top rope through a flaming pane of friggin' glass. I'm going to get like, uh, like, um, you know, smashed onto cinder blocks. That's going to hurt. And, and you have this list in your mind of all the crazy things that you have to go through. And Matt Nigmondo, he talked about this with you guys in his interview. He had pretty much like a similar approach like me, where you were basically just like in those matches, you would go through the list of things. You would know like the, the big things you have to hit, the, the risky stuff. And, you know, with something like Tournament of Death, for example, my first round match against DJ Hyde, which is kind of infamous because we did some stupid stuff. Once I was done with the power bomb through the flaming glass, I was like, okay, for me, the worst part of the match is over. For DJ Hyde, the worst part of the match was still to come. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll be we're going to be getting deep into that tournament later uh, in this interview. I can't wait for that. I can't wait. Um, so, of course, you know, you've got the, the start of the tournament. You know, you've got the lead up to it. 
preparing for it. But then how do you recover from all of that? How, how long does that take? Um, take us through the recovery. Like I would say it would take you three days at least to be somewhat okay where it's like, okay, like at least you can start rolling off your couch and whatnot without, I don't know, your body sticking to the couch because you have like all these wounds and you're just like still days later, you're dripping blood from like all over your body, which can suck like with bad sheets and couches and whatnot. Um, I would say after a week, you're fine as in you're going to be as fine as you'll ever be. Because then it's time for the next show and maybe it's time for the next death match. So you're just going to like add new wounds to the old wounds and it's going to be scars on top of scars on top of scars. Um, but yeah, the recovery is, is, is the hard part, especially I think uh, what a lot of fans are not aware of and how could they like if you've never done it. The worst part oftentimes is this is going to sound so stupid, but it's not taking a shower after the match. Yeah. Or after the tournament, because by that time, normally, you know, like at least an hour has gone by, maybe two hours, the adrenaline rush has worn off. Like your body is no longer under adrenaline and the adrenaline helps with the pain. But like after the show and then you take your shower and like fresh water in like all those wounds all over your body, that just hurts so much. And dude, like I remember some shows, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit it. Um, I remember one particular where I actually cried in the shower for a long time, for like half an hour after after a match like that. It was against JC Bailey, barefoot thumbtack match. My feet stay my, my feet they hurt so bad that I was just like crying because of all, all the pain, you know. Ah, <sighs> uh, barefoot thumbtack. Yeah, no, that is a night later on to talk about. I know. I saw it and I was just like, oh my God. When I read it earlier today, I was like, my God, the feet are the most, like, one of the most, like, sensitive Sensitive. parts of the body. So sensitive. I know. But, like, even after, like, this tournament of death, the first one I did, where, you know, Nick Gage, he ended up in the hospital. Everybody remembers that. I still had third degree burns from the first round, from, like, the spot through the flaming glass. Yeah, uh, and I had wrestled more matches on top of those burns. So by the time like I was done showering, like m- like my whole arm, my back, m- like everything, like it was a mess. My hair was on fire at one point, and I remember like after my shower, Sammy Callihan, like with the disinfectant spray, just like looking at me very sternly, and he was like, "I'm sorry, TJ, but I have to do this," and like, and he started disinfecting me that hurt so bad like and he could tell like he could tell i was just like cringing and i was so very close to tears because of the pain and like with every drip of the 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 disinfectant gimmick he was like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i'm so sorry (laughs) just painful man um of course i got one last question before i throw back to carl um how did the U.S. audience take to you? Of course, you've um, already built a bit of a name for yourself over in uh, Europe. How did the U.S. audience take to you? And I actually want to go back to an interesting point that you made earlier um, when you shared a bit of insight on finishing with a finisher and not the biggest stunt. Because I noticed that with a lot of modern deathmatch tournaments, especially, and like um, I don't mean to call anyone out, but like especially a tournament of survival triple six recently, a lot of those matches ended with just ridiculous spots. So of course, um, you're coming over to the states. You're always talking. You spoke about wanting to just do matches with finishes to end it so how did the u.s audiences take to your style and um if you implemented that style of finish how did they uh react to it 
That's a fantastic question because that was quite tricky for me to connect with the US audience. Like I had to win them over. And, you know, like I was coming from Dubbix Dub where I had like this amazing crowd in Germany. Like you're over no matter what you do. You just have to come out for Dubbix Dub, do your entrance and you're going to get a pop. And then I'm wrestling in the US for the first time. I'm coming out and people are kind of like, who is this German kid? Let's, <laughs> let's see what he's got. So I got to win them over throughout the tournament. And I think it really helped me for my first performance in the US that I could do three matches because, you know, like they had to warm up to me. And by the end of the night, they had warmed up. But like the first round, I won with a tornado tornado DDT, like into fish hooks, which is gnarly. But (laughs) at the end of the day, like if you compare it to like big spots off the top rope through like a bunch of light tubes, it's like like a mediocre type of spot. Second round against Necro Butcher, I win with a freaking roll up. We don't even <laughs> use the big gimmick. We had the huge gimmick, like a uh, light tube gimmick. It was so big, it was hard to even get it into the ring. And I remember talking with Necro Butcher before that show and asking him, like, what the hell are we going to do with that thing? And he just looked at me like, we're not going to use it. <laughs> and I was like, that makes perfect sense. We're not going to use it. We're just going to screw the fans and do a roll-up finish, which would be like a heelish thing to do. But I was trying to get over. So, um, yeah, in the finals, eventually, like, I hit my finishing move off the top rope through a table with electrified light tubes. And that was, like, big enough of a spot. But still, it wasn't ridiculous by any means. You know, it wasn't like, I don't know, Nick Mondo coming off the roof through tables and whatnot. It was just, you know, like, your finisher off the top rope. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a different different mentality in the US, but uh, yeah, overall, I think to answer your question, um, you know, like, I, I guess I won the crowd over with the effort that I was putting into the matches and they could tell like, okay, like he has taken some some nasty stuff and yeah. he has dished out some nasty punishment. So yeah, let's let's applaud the German guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. How do you, Carl? Yeah, so I mean, okay, we were just talking about, you know, IWA East Coast and the Masters of Pain. And uh, now, uh, you know, from my research, uh, bringing it over to now IWA Mid-South, there was uh, uh, three matches here that I saw in my research that I thought were interesting to bring up. It's the King of the Death Matches 2009, three bouts of one day on the 6th of March 2009 at the Hartman Rec Centre in Joliet, uh, Illinois. Uh, you, you you work with Nick Gage for the first time in a deep six death match, which I still don't know what that is. Uh, Pondo again in the semifinal. And then the final saw yourself against Masada, Dysfunction and Necro Butcher. In, this is ridiculous, right? In a four-way double ring, no ropes, barbed wire fans bring the weapons 30-minute Iron Man match. That Amazing. Is my, like, that would be that would have been my dream as a 13-year-old man. there's just so much going on there uh please uh, tell me a little bit about how you felt about um working at iwa mid-south and this show in particular yeah you know this is one of those tournaments where it's too much of a clusterfuck if you ask me like especially the finals like i think it would have been a better match if we would have had less gimmicks it was Mm. just too much you know like two rings in itself like that's already a gimmick you don't yeah. necessarily need to fill both rings with, with a ton of gimmicks. So I, I didn't really like that part of it, but um, I wrestled with Nick Gage for the first time. And I'm going to be perfectly honest here, and this might like be an unpopular thing to say. 
Um, back then, I didn't really enjoy working with him all that much. I know that the Nick Gage of 2021 is a totally different guy. Like the grasp that he has of the business nowadays, it's not just that he's over, but like Nick Gage has become such a smart worker. But back in the days, you know, this was before he ended up in jail for the first time. He was a bit more reckless and he would tend to take liberties with his opponents. And uh, actually, I remember Danny Havoc, uh, rest in peace. He told me before the match, like, be, be careful. Like, he might try to take liberties with you. Just, just be prepared for that. And uh, once he did, I, you know, just hit him with the stiffest headbutt that I could dish out. And, like, he was backing off. And I was like, are we fine? And he was like, okay, we're cool. And I don't, I don't necessarily like to work like that. Like I can, mm. because it's the European old school thing to do. Like, you know, sometimes you're just gonna butt heads with a guy, literally in this case. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like it was what it was. Um, it was a barbed wire match, the one against Nick Gage. I always hated barbed wire matches. Um, they are a spectacle. I just like hate the pain of it. Like I, I would rather fall into glass than barbed wire any day of the week. Um, so yeah, whenever I was booked for a match like that, like a moral barbed wire match, I was like, ugh, okay, like this, this right. is gonna be tough tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, and the next question that I had um, was, you know, okay, like, could it, this is just in response to the last gimmick match that I just brought up. All you need yeah, to say is. Just say the sentence again, the double ring, no rope sentence again, and then ask the question. And it's just it's like... uh, okay. Double ring, no rope, barbed wire, fans bring the weapons, 30-minute Iron Man match. How do you continue to push the boundaries when it starts getting this crazy? When when it's almost at the point where you've almost you've had to have seen almost everything there possibly can be done in a death match, aside from someone bringing a handgun into the ring and shooting somebody or something like that. This is, you know. How do you think of the next thing that hasn't been done before? Like, what, how does it get when you're at that point of uh, creativity where you're like, what can we do that's different that hasn't been done before? You said it there at the end, you need to do something different that hasn't been done before. And that's something that I really pride myself on in my career because, like, once I started being booked in the US as an outside talent, being flown in from Europe, like, they had already seen anything in the book. So if I wanted to stand out, I would have to do something totally different, something they hadn't seen before. For me, that was the syringes. Like the reaction the syringes got when, when I did them back in the day as the first guy ever were enormous. Like I always like to, to compare it to like a scale from one to 10. What's the reaction you're going to get and what's the pain you're going to be in? So I don't know, with like a nasty light tube bump off the top rope, the pain might be like a seven and your reaction might be like an eight or nine or something. All right. With the syringes, I'm just, just going to tell it like it is. Like the reaction we got was a 10. The pain was not a 10. Mm. That's all I'm going to say. Like, I'm not going to say it was a magic trick or anything because like we still did the thing, you know, like he stabbed me, my opponents would stab me through the face with a syringe, but it was all about the art of selling. And um, nowadays guys do that spot 
and it's 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 almost become like a comedy thing where i'm like that's not how you work the gimmick like right <laughs> it's nice like that someone is trying to um imitate me that's the sincerest form of flattery you know but um you can get so much more out of a lot of deathmatch gimmicks if you just concentrate on the selling and yeah that's that's one advice that i would give to deathmatch wrestlers these days to just slow it down and to answer the other part of your question like what do you do like if you've conditioned the audience to a point where they have seen it all like the bar like you cannot you cannot top what you've done before all you can do is step back slow it down do less the next time and recondition the audience and i wish you know that there would um would be a trend in modern day deathmatch wrestling where more guys would understand okay like we've pushed it to the limit especially like with the tournaments of survival let's step back let's recondition the crowds and i think to be fair like with the last tournament of survival they've they've done a good job with that like it was still gnarly but it was it wasn't as reckless as the years prior you know yeah definitely I get you. All right. Well, we're going to throw it back over to Jack because it's time to talk about CZW. Yep. Um, so I actually discovered CZW when I was in grade five in 2008. So that's very, very young to be exposed to deathmatch wrestling, but I was hooked. Um, so, of course, uh, seven days later after uh, the IWA Mid-South King of the Deathmatch uh, tournament in 2009, you had uh, your CZW debut at Total Havoc at the arena in Philadelphia, which is a very iconic arena. Uh, first of all, you've uh, been a fan of ECWs. How was it wrestling in the arena? Intimidating in a way. I remember walking into that building, into the legendary ECW arena, and just like <sighs> looking at the names of the Hall of Fame. They would have like all these banners hanging from, from the ceiling. And just the guys who had wrestled there, you know, uh, all the guys who got inducted into their Hall of Fame. And that really made me realize like, this is the building from all the VHS tapes that I watched. It is the exact same building. Shit. And tonight I'm supposed to be the main event. Like this is the Philadelphia crowd. They have seen it all. They have seen legends like Cactus Jack and Terry Funk and Sabu. What is there that I can offer that is kind of like a new thing for them? Yeah. And um, yeah, but like in, in, in the same sentence i need to say like it was just like it was such an honor and and a pleasure you know i was working with danny havoc who i always loved working with um same thing with like with a lot of the other matches that we talked about um a lot of that was you know just us doing stuff on the fly uh because i remember like before the show like it was starting to be late in the day it was like 30 minutes before the fans would get into the venue and danny havoc was still not around to call the match or to go through spots or whatever and i asked his wife um back then his first wife like uh megan uh where's danny oh he's at the local strip club and i was like what <laughs> she she just said it so casually yeah yeah he likes to go to the strip club before the matches it calms uh. him down and i was like first of all are you fine with that and she was like <laughs> yeah whatever and then i was like well okay I'm, I'm probably not gonna call a lot of stuff with my opponent and he showed up like 10 minutes before the show and you know like we just like sat on the apron and and talked a little about a few ideas that we had but um yeah the philadelphia crowd man 
I wrote it in my book, like, if you can get over with that crowd, and I want to specify, if you can get over with that crowd in that specific building in the ECW arena, you can get over anywhere. Definitely, man. It's like, it's a, that is a critical crowd. I mean, everyone that knows ECW knows that ECW know what they like. And this is like, obviously the same crowd. They know what they like. They know what they want in their wrestling. So um, to be able to impress them and, you know, get over with them, you know, you've done something right. Um, so how did actually the CZW fans uh, welcome you though uh, to them? I'm assuming obviously, uh, of course, not just, not just Philadelphia. So CZW as a whole, obviously you became a pretty uh, staple name, um, sort of a long-term speaking, you're a pretty iconic name of CZW alumni. How did the CZW fans welcome you at first in your style of, um, of deathmatch wrestling? Well, thank you first and foremost for the high praise there. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Welcome. Um, you know, like I, I just clicked with the locker room and that really just helped me, you know, to uh, get booked again. And I was getting along with everybody in the locker room. And that was just, you know, such a great crowd of, um, or I should say that was such a great group of other wrestlers to be working with, like Danny Havoc, Drake Younger, Masada, uh, Scotty Vortex, uh, Nick Gage, Sammy Callahan. I'm probably missing a guy or two, pardon me, but that crop of guys, John Moxley, he was there as well. Wrestling with those guys um, made it easy. You know, it, it was just a group of, of deathmatch guys all pretty much peaking at the same time. We all had pretty much the same mindset of let's, let's do a little less because everything has already been done before in tournament of death one tournament of death two, we're just going to do a little less of everything and work our gimmicks more, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I think the gimmick really is what made me um, click with the audience. Uh, I just had a unique look, you know, I, I think I'm thinking back to what DJ Hyde told me uh, on, on a car ride to, to tournament of death. He was like, you know, TJ, you're a different taste of chocolate. You're a taste of chocolate that the fans over here have never had before. And so right now they want more of it. They want more of Thumbtack Jack. And what he meant by that is, you know, people couldn't put me in a box because when it comes to my appearance, you know, I was standing out, I was wearing all white, you know, coming to the ring with the white mask, the white yeah. hoodie, the white pants and everything. Everybody back then was wearing black and like heavy metal. All the entrance yeah. themes were like heavy, growly male voices. So I come out to Flyleaf like with this, voice like this female voice a singer who's almost like fragile sounding and that in itself was just like a unique presentation you know okay like here's this guy he, he's just like different just like with with the entrance and i think the entrance is the most important thing of the whole presentation in wrestling and i don't know if i watch entrances nowadays i'm like ah if we would have had all the gimmicks back then, like a big Titantron and like the big lights and everything, you can do so much more with an entrance oh, and like with camera angles and whatnot. But yeah, I just always tried to, you know, win the crowd over before the bell ever rang. That's it, man. And to be honest, like one of the biggest things that won me over with, uh, with some of your work as well was the like, you're talking about wearing white. Okay, in a death match, you bleed like shit ton. And Matt Cardona, he's, a, he's already fucking, he proves this. If you wear white in a death match, it's going to cover everything. And that was one of the things that always stood out to me was often, you know, your, your, your pants were fucking sucked in your own blood. Um, and, and of course, you're right. Like a lot of the guys back then were wearing, you know, like the typical just E-Lucha sort of, you know, plain black gear. Uh, so it was like a different look for you. Um, 
that I think the look especially was what really connects with a lot of the audience. And that's, that's what connected with me because, you know, as a, as a kid, uh, as a, as a 12, 13 year old, that's watching CCW. I can't watch. I mean, I, I don't understand wrestling psychologically as well. So you connected with me for your, um, for your entrance, um, attire yeah. and just by your overall look. And, um, I'm glad Thank that you, you were able to sort of, um, see that in yourself as well. But, um, can I, can I say one thing? Because I sure. didn't reinvent the wheel there. I just took it from Mick Foley. Because if yeah. you think back at his legendary performance, King of the Death matches in Japan in 1995, in the finals, he was wearing white. That's the exact yeah. same thing that you just mentioned. He had the crimson mask. So by the end of the match, his entire shirt was red. And I just like remembered that visual. And I think you know it would not have been such an infamous legendary tournament win if he would not have worn that color, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's the little things, man. Like I love the little things in wrestling. I'm sure I know you do as well, Carl. Like you love the little things. Absolutely. There is, we were talking about this in the AEW ramp. I'm sure we're going to end up going about this later, but there's just so many little things um, in, in, that could have made, you know, things like today's show a little bit better, but that's a whole different conversation. Uh, so we're going to talk about CZW Tournament of Death 8. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably in my opinion, one of the most infamous days of your career. Um, on 6th of June, 2009 in uh, Townsend, Delaware. So in your first round match, you defeated DJ Hyde in a match that involved syringes, cinder blocks, pens of glass, light tubes, and fire, uh, as we have uh, spoken about already. Um, a spot that I really did want to talk about was the piercing through the cheek. I mean, that is an insane visual. I know you've already sort of spoken about how it's not too painful, but I mean, what was like the first time you ever used a syringe in your match, like how was that experience for you? And then of course, with this one here, it just looks so deep. And we, what was that? There was like, I've seen a photo recently of the syringe in your cheek and there was something shooting out of it. I'm curious to know what that was. Yeah. Was that just water or something just to make it a bit more of a crazy effect? <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny question uh, about the content of the syringes. Yeah. With the first tournament of death, that, that was the first time we ever did that spot. Like right. that was like the world premiere of the syringe through the cheek spot. Oh, wow. So Nobody had ever time. seen. Yeah. Nobody yeah. had ever seen that before. Like I saved that for the U S like I made sure to not use that in, in Germany. Like I had already had the idea in my mind and I just sat on it for like three quarters of a year before I ever did the spot because I was like the the show has to match the significance of the spot because I, I had this idea, like if I sell it right, if I have the crimson mask, that's got, that's what's going to sell the gimmick, you know, like just my, my selling is going to sell it. And it did. And the content, you know, was just um, to be able to prove to the audience. Okay. Like he actually stabbed him through the cheek. Like it's yeah. not an illusion, but like if he's shooting out content from the syringe, like the only way to do that is if you actually like pierce him through the cheek you know yeah so with the first tournament of death that was just water and like then later on we got a little more creative because i wanted something red kind of like looking oh, like blood so yeah. with the next tournament of death <laughs> against masada i remember we just put like red gatorade into the oh, syringes <laughs> oh wow uh, yeah you know, that's also like a thing. And in the match against DJ Hyde, another unique thing is I had two special syringes prepared and they had lighter fluid in it. You know, lighter fluid in yeah. the syringes. So just the visual of me setting up the spot with the flaming pane of glass, it was not like the, like even something that's not the spot itself. It's just the preparation for the yeah. spot. Talking about the tiny things, like how can you do things differently? People have seen guys with the yellow bottle the of yellow. lighter fluid. They've seen it in ECW. 
they've seen it a million times. They've never seen a guy use the syringes instead. And so just <laughs> the small things like that, I think is like something that the crowd would appreciate. Like, you know, oh, okay, he's, he's, he's thinking outside the box. Yeah, I, I, it's, that's great stuff, man. I, I, I've actually been fooled for years that that red Gatorade was actually blood. So kudos to you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, so <laughs> semifinals, we had a, fa- a three-way fans bring the weapons match with uh, you defeating Danny Havoc and Wax. Um, and of course, the uh, final, I know this is probably what anyone that's watching this podcast probably come to hear about this story. The Nick Gage uh, pretty much bleeding, or he was pronounced but dead at some point, um, that whole incident. Uh, take us through sort of uh, that day. Of course, that spot like um, where you're sort of going through, but you've got your arm up and you're sliding through the second rope into the thing. We've seen that a lot over the years, but I don't think we've ever seen it like that. Um, take us through that sort of match. Um, of course, just the whole situation from your perspective. Yeah, it's funny because this happened like a third into the match we weren't even like halfway through the match we were just basically getting started Mm -hmm. starting to use some light tubes we started this match very slowly methodically and just did like some some wrestling actually before we ever used the light tubes Mm -hmm. a couple of minutes went by before we ever used the first light tube so this spot where the accident happened it was just supposed to be the setup for a bigger spot (sighs) all all we wanted to do was just get the light tubes out of the way so we can take a pane of glass and stick it vertically like between the ropes and do a spot through the pane of glass. So we just needed to get the light tubes out of the way. And I remember, you know, we called that one in the ring, like a few seconds before the accident happened. And it was just like, are you going to take it or am I going to take it? And Nikki was like, I'm going to take it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Tossed him. And you know, it's an, it's an accident. Yeah. Um, it's a horrible accident. Don't get me wrong. Um, but he never blamed me for it. I never really blamed myself for it. It, it just happened, you know, like it's, it's an odd freak accident, but you know, what are you going to expect? You know, if you wrestle with 200 light tubes, eventually something is gonna go wrong in one of these matches. And, uh, sadly enough, it did that night. And, um, you know, when the episode of dark side of the ring aired, that was yeah. not too long ago. Um, on the day after the episode aired, I actually put out a video on YouTube, which has English subtitles, yep. and people can look that up. I just killed Nick fucking Gage. If you just look for that, I just killed Nick fucking Gage. You're going to find the video. Um, it's in German, but it has English subtitles. And I tell the story about, you know, out of my perspective, I didn't have a clue what was going on because I was just concerned setting up the next spot. And all of that happened so quickly. He takes the spill through the light tubes, like immediately he starts gushing blood and you can tell like he's hurt and he can tell that he's hurt. So he starts running backstage. I never saw any of that. I never saw him run backstage because I had turned around to grab the pane of glass and I was gonna, you know, put the pane of glass into position. And by the time I did, I was just kind of like looking around outside the ring and I asked the ref, Where's Nikki? He ran backstage. That's all the information I had. Oh, wow. I, I didn't even like, like in the first second, I didn't even put two and two together that he got hurt. It was just like, why would he run backstage? Is he dehydrated or, oh, maybe he got hurt. What happened? I didn't know. 
Like um, there was no communication. There was no earpiece with the referee where the backstage area could communicate with the referee. So the ref was lost. I was lost. Uh, I was getting angry at that point. Like um, on the tape, you can see me actually like just like kicking a few of the light tubes. That was actually me being angry at the situation. Just like, fuck, what do I do now? Like I've never been in a situation like that. There is no, uh, you know, like textbook thing that you can apply here. What do you do halfway through a death match if your opponent gets hurt so bad that he's going to end up having been lifted to the hospital in a helicopter? Um, and I didn't know like how bad the injury was. I didn't know if he was going to return to the ring. Maybe he's going to go backstage and he's just going to, you know, get taped up. I didn't see the visual that the fans saw on the videotape of him gushing blood. I didn't see any of that. I, I didn't know how bad it was, you know. So uh, eventually, just out of instinct, because I didn't know what else to do, I started walking towards the backstage area. I I, I cannot tell you what my plan was. Basically, I, I guess my plan was just to check out the situation and, you know, in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm, I might walk through the curtain and DJ Hyde might tell me, TJ, the show is over, Nick Gage is injured, like, like the show is done. I, I didn't know. And then Moxley walks up to me and smacks me in the head right as I was going to go through the curtain. I didn't see Moxley coming. So I didn't know what was happening there. Um, everybody was just, you know, like a crazy... You know, um, it, it was panic backstage, basically. You know, it, everybody was panicking. Everybody was kind of like going on on a weird autopilot, not knowing what to do. Moxley didn't know what he was doing. You know, one person had just told him like, oh, Nick Gage is injured. The finals are still going on. And, and he didn't, you know, like initially walk to the ring to improvise a match with me. He was just like randomly walking into that direction. And... But then we just started fighting, you know, it, it was like the weirdest thing. And I, I didn't know, was it a shoot or like what's happening? Um, so my big concern was that the CZW locker room was actually going to try to injure me because I heard one of their guys. Because, you know, I started working with Moxley. We were starting to like improvise a match and I was like, okay, fair enough. Like I can work with this guy. Uh, he's good. And um, let's just, let's just improvise a match. And to this day, it's not a regret or anything because, you know, everybody was panicking. There is no right thing to do. There is no protocol. But I just wish that the rest of the locker room would not have ran out to the ring. I just wish they, that they would have let Moxley and me improvise the rest of the finals. You could always fix it in post, you know. You can always yeah. explain afterwards, oh, yeah, like he was being sent to the ring because, I don't know, whatever bullshit type of reason. He was one of the guys in the tournament, you know, like he got eliminated in the second round. So, I don't know. Um, I think that could have been cool, uh, him and I just finishing the match on the fly. But then Sammy Kellyanne starts showing up. DJ Hyde starts showing up. I don't see this. I don't see this coming. They have light tubes. They smash me in the back with light tubes. And if you don't see it coming... If you cannot prepare for the pain, it's that much worse. Yeah. So that's why I thought this was a shoot. And nobody like told me like, hey, TJ, we're going to work with you here. They just like grabbed me, power bombed me into the corner, grabbed me, power bombed me again. And I was like, oh, God, they're trying to hurt me because I injured one of their guys, uh, rightfully so, you know, like, yeah. Um, but yeah, then then the entire locker room emptied, the baby faces ran out, 
And it was actually Drake Younger and Danny Havoc who like took me aside in the corner and told me like, TJ, it's all good. It's all good. It's not your fault. Because I was like, what's happening? What's happening? And they just told me like, don't worry. Nobody's mad at you. It was an accident. It was an accident. Just they, they reassured me. And what a weird night, man. What a weird night. Um, the whole tournament ended in a clusterfuck. And, you know, like I was just being handed the trophy kind of like by default. And um, yeah, that, that was a crazy night. And, you know, afterwards, after the show was over, just seeing the helicopter land was so eerie and surreal. Mm -hmm. You got to know this, like the fans were not allowed to leave um, because of like the parking situation. Like um, if there would have been like a lot of cars leaving the, um, the arena for the lack of better terms. Uh, the helicopter would have had problems to land. So they were just like, everybody stay where you are. So it was just like this massive circle of hundreds and hundreds of people, fans and co-workers alike. And we are all just standing there and, you know, witnessing Nikki being put on the stretcher and being put into the helicopter by the medics and being flown away. That was like still to this day, like that part, the match I remember and everything that happened, but like, the part afterwards still feels like like a bad dream to this day yeah, yeah it's wow. just uh it's, it's a bit of a horror show when you think about it the whole situation like the, not the entire match because you know the first couple of minutes were you know business as usual but then you sort of getting into the that's fine you, you know it's when you watch but when you watch that show back you know it's coming to and it's just like but you end up technically winning the tournament of death eight um i we're going to be going into uh, Carl's next round of questions, which do cover the uh, Tournament Death Rewind, uh, which I presume was never planned and was just specifically to sort of redo the Tournament Death that year, just to get a clean winner. Yeah. So, uh, Carl, take it from here. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for uh, saying that, Jack, because I was wondering what the hell is Tournament of Death Rewind? Now I know. Uh, the 29th of October 2009, uh, we, we go for it again. Um the first round, four corners of hell, dog collar, death match. Uh, you defeat John Moxley. You've mentioned John, obviously, very topical to today's uh, wrestling scene. Uh, what was this like working with John on this day? Super easy. Um, John was always a pleasure to work with, and he was a creative guy. And in this match, a lot of people probably don't notice but um his main job as a worker as a co-worker was to cover up the fact that i was going into the tournament of death rewind injured i had just torn my pcl in my right knee 20 days before tournament of death rewind that is an injury that would normally put you on the shelf for at least four or five months maybe half a year but i was like dude i'm supposed to win tournament of death like I cannot call in sick. Like, I have to take this book in, injured or not. I could barely walk. Like, that's when I had to start wrestling with two knee braces. I already had a messed up knee from prior, but now my other knee was also gone. So I had two bad knees. I'm wrestling with two knee braces now, like Steve Austin. The, the one knee has a freshly torn PCL, I could barely walk. I remember like before the show, the doctor, he had to tape me up good. Like he put layer and layer and layer of tape uh, 
on my knee and like then a bandage on top of that and then the knee brace on top of that. So my knee was pretty stiff. Like if you can normally bend your knee in like a 90 degree or more angle, all I could do was like a 15 degree angle. Like the knee brace made sure that I could barely do anything with my knee. And if you know that, go back to that match and watch it because the, like in weird situations, like when I'm trying to like um, get to my feet or even get into the ring, like I just move in an odd way because my leg is so messed up. And if you don't notice, however, you could probably never tell because John did such a fantastic job laying out the match with me in a way where the focus would be on other things. And for example, like we only had one spot where I needed to do a little bit of running as best as I could with the injury, where I was just like, we were connected with a dog collar and I was just like running around, uh, like around him and dragged the dog collar and he took the bump, which was kind of like a comedic spot. That was all the running we did, like the rest of the match and the rest of the rest of the night. I didn't do like any running spots, you know, so... Yeah, we had some fun in that match, had some fun gimmicks like with the mouse traps, dude, like they brought back the mouse traps for the match that he had with Kenny Omega for AEW, the lights yeah. out match they had in 2019. <laughs> and they even included the spot from Tournament of Death Rewind where Moxley gives me like a Uranagi onto the mouse traps. And um, they did include that in the hype package of his match against Kenny Omega and then they do the gimmick like the mousetrap board in in like as an homage <laughs> to Moxley's deathmatch days and I would have just happened to be the guy that he did the mousetraps with so that was cool to see um awesome. but yeah fun 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 working with Mox super easy and dude like I could tell that the guy is smart when I pitched my idea for the finish because not every guy would have agreed to do that type of finish because a lot of guys would have been afraid to look weak because what happened was the finish was a throwback to the first tournament of death a few months earlier where I had won the first round match by having DJ Hyde um, tied up in the ropes and hitting him over the head with a cinder block and I had Moxley in a very similar situation where he was also kind of like tied up in the ropes and I was threatening to do the same thing I did against DJ Hyde to hit him over the head with a cinder block. And I had asked him before the match, like, what do you think about just calling it quits? You know, throw in the towel, just like, no, 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 I quit, I quit, I quit. And then I'm just standing there with the cinder block kind of like being declared the winner, <laughs> throwing the cinder block to the side, never doing the spot. And a lot of guys would have been afraid to look weak, kind of, no, I cannot, I cannot quit, you know, like, I'm going to look like a pussy. But yeah. he was smart back then, man. He, he understood the business. Excellent, excellent. Actually, I will, before I continue on talking about the Rewind tournament, uh, with, with Tournament Death uh, 8, who was actually slated to actually win that, that tournament? Uh, I know that you had been given the trophy because Nick couldn't continue the match, but um, were you actually slated to win that ahead of time? I'm trying to think back, but for the life of me, man, I can't remember. No? <laughs> That's fine, bro. Um, I just thought I, I should uh, ask that um, just in case anyone out there is curious. But anyway. Nice try. <laughs> back to Tournament of Death Rewind. Uh, semi-final. Uh, a, a casket match. Uh, it's a Transylvania death match, apparently. Uh, Thumbtack Jack defeats Sammy Callahan. 
How's the how how are the knees holding up when you get to the semi final? Rough, to be quite honest. I was in in a lot of pain, and uh, the match stipulation didn't make it any better. Someone, it was probably Sammy, had the stupid idea of filling up the casket with thumbtacks, <laughs> which the fans never saw. Like on tape, you might be aware of the fact that there were thumbtacks inside the casket because maybe some camera shots gave it away. But the crowd, like the audience being at the show, they didn't have a clue that every time we were bumping into the casket, we were actually bumping onto thumbtacks. And, you know, like thumbtacks on wood hurts a lot more than thumbtacks, let's say, like on a ring mat. Yeah. And yeah, I just remember that being quite miserable every time, like you you would take a <laughs> spill into the stupid casket. At one point in the match, Sammy Kellyan actually choked me out like I was gone for like oh, really. Minutes. 10 seconds uh he just like did a random camel clutch type thing like with it with a t-shirt i guess where he just like choked me a little bit too stiffly and like i i didn't have a way to tell him like i was trying to give him like the iggy or or something touch him or let him know like sammy i cannot breathe like i remember trying to speak but i couldn't speak because i was being choked and yeah i was just losing it like i remember that like uh legit like uh just like in a movie, like you would imagine, like it just everything gets black and black and black and you start to lose your vision and you start to fade. And I remember like, huh, so is that going to be like how I'm going to be eliminated in this tournament <laughs> of death? I'm just going to like collapse because the guy choked me with a shirt. Fuck, that's a bad finish. <laughs> and speaking of the casket, they probably just filled that with popcorn and uh, no one would have known. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, you get to the final, yeah, with two bad knees. Um, you get to the final, it's a house of pain. You take on Masada, you defeat him. And uh, through all this process, from my research, correct me if I'm wrong, you become the CZW ultraviolet underground champion as well. Um, yeah, I already became the champion like in the second round. You already Sammy, run it. You so beat okay, I'm going you beat into the it, finals yeah. as the new champion, so to say, right. defending the title in the finals. Excellent, excellent. Um, okay, so you spoke about the semi-final. How did the final go? That was against Masada. I always loved working with Masada. I think he is so fucking underrated. That guy is fantastic. And I remember, like, this was not the first time I was wrestling him. I had wrestled him prior, just a month prior. Like, this was shortly before I had torn the PCL. So when I wrestled Masada a month prior in Germany, that's when we had the best match. And I mean that as in the best match of my career which happened in Germany, you know, like we did a 32 minute Texas death match with the old school Texas death match rules. And those awesome rules just contributed to the drama. So we had just had this amazing match in, in Germany. And a lot of people probably have never seen that one. The match that they end up ended up seeing was the one at tournament of death, which was still good. Some people like even message me up to this day telling me like, dude, like this is my favorite tournament of death final match ever. The one me against Masada. And I'm always just thinking like, thank you. I appreciate that. But if you only knew how good the match was, we had in Germany a month prior. All right. um, so if I could change anything about history, it would probably be that. Um, I don't know. I would probably just want to do the old school thing of, you know, just like you did in the territories, like you could 
just do the same match a few nights in a row and nobody would know and nobody like from the US crowd like nobody had seen the match I had had with Masada in Germany you know like it was not readily available there was no West Side Extreme Wrestling streaming service back then. So I could yeah. have just very well done the exact same match with him, trying to replicate it. But, you know, we had different stipulations, different gimmicks to work with and whatnot. So we did the best that we could do. Um, I loved Masada because he was working stiff, but he was never reckless. And we were throwing a few potatoes in that match, in all of our matches, actually but friendly ones, just like a friendly competition type of deal, just to see kind of like who would ask the other one first to please slow it down. And it <laughs> ended up being me, like after he hit me in the face real hard. And I was like, bro, are we good? And he was like, yeah, we're good. And then we just like continued on wrestling uh, without like being too stiff. Well, I'm saying that. And then like the next thing, he hits me with a brain buster and like there's... Uh, those skewers in my head. Um, <laughs> that was a fun spot because that was the first time I did the kick out at one in the US. Oh, really? We were starting to do the finishing phase of the match. And I remember that got a huge ovation from the crowd. Nowadays, like it's like your typical spot that you would have in almost every death match where one guy kicks out at one <clears throat> adrenaline rush. Back then, that was not a spot that people were doing, you know. Right. I had actually stolen it. I had stolen it from Steve Carino, who I had just um, seen do the spot in Germany. And I was like, oh, that's a cool spot. You know, mm. it's one of those forgotten spots at that point in time in 2009. And yeah, I remember like that was really like what made the crowd shift into the next gear for the finish of the match. When, when I kicked out at one after the brain buster with the skewers in my head. So, yeah, man, fond memories, fond memories of working with Masada. We didn't even use most of the gimmicks in the match, actually, I remember. Like, we only used a few of them, but you don't need to do all the gimmicks, you know. Understood, understood. And before I throw it to Jack, we've been talking a lot about the matches, the tournaments, the in-ring stuff. I wanted to ask you quickly, outside of the ring, after the show, parties hanging out with the guys outside of the ring do you have any fond memories of uh, or any funny stories of spending time with the guys outside of these tournaments and where everyone's very focused and 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 there's a lot going on outside just hanging out with the guys any fond memories of that yeah man i was um you know just hanging out casually with uh, the cz dub locker room here and there because you know when I was being flown in, a lot of the times I was doing like little tours of the US. The longest one I did was like a month straight wrestling like every weekend and sometimes during the week. And so I would have time to just hang out with the guys and just, you know, during the week, hit up a bar, do whatever. Um, I wasn't drinking anything back then, but, you know, like I still like to hang out with the guys and just be around them. And yeah, I remember everybody being very welcoming, especially like Danny Havoc outside of the ring like he always made sure that I was you know um just having a good time just having you know everything I need just you know made sure that I would enjoy myself b-boy he was a lot of fun to hang out with in Philadelphia and dude you know like Philadelphia is a rugged area I remember like this one guy we were partying b-boy was kind of leaving early 
And then like a few minutes later, he comes back and tells us the story of the guy outside the venue had just put a gun to his head. Give me all your money. <laughs> and B-Boy being the badass that he is just replied with, really? <laughs> and the guy with the gun was just standing there like, what the fuck type of response is that? So nothing ever happened. Viva just walked away and was like, leave me the fuck alone. I'm a fucking badass. Like, what are you doing? Like, threatening me with a gun outside a club in friggin' Philadelphia. But yeah, like even, you know, um, a lot of fond memories from my private free time on those US trips uh, would be even without the locker room. Because I made sure to, you know, just enjoy myself as a tourist in the US. You got to keep this in mind. Like I had never gone to the US before wrestling. So like seeing all these things, like seeing Atlantic City, seeing New York, doing some sightseeing and whatnot, that was that was cool to me, you know? Like it was just cool to be paid by someone to fly to another continent, fly to the US. The US are always, you know, being perceived as very cool in like Western Europeans' eyes, you know? Um, it's the place to be kind of. And yeah, that was fun. Like at, at one point I even had a girlfriend in the US and long distance relationship, but wrestling made it work. I would see her every every few weeks, you know? Yep. So yeah, good times, man. Good times. Oh, that's awesome, cool. I, I just thought it was it, it was necessary to just get a little bit away from the wrestling and just talk a little bit about like you know, your personal stories of, of how you felt being in, in the States. But over to you, Jack. Awesome, man. Um... Of course, we're now we're going to go to one of the stories that made me cringe very hard early in the show here about the uh, 13th of March, 2010, CZW, walking on pins and needles at the arena in Philly. Uh, so you got the barefoot thumbtacks, thumbtacks deathmatch, where uh, you and JC Bailey uh, did a thumbtack deathmatch with no shoes on. Um, whose idea was this? I'm assuming this was CZW's idea. I mean, I hope it wasn't your idea. Um I don't think it was your idea based on that reaction uh, from the recovery of that match. Uh, how was that experience? I mean, I know it obviously sucked. And um, yeah, took us through that whole experience and about that day. Yeah, that was not my idea. It was JC Bailey's idea. <sighs> it was the type of match, you know, that he was kind of infamous for. Him and right. Drake, they yeah. had done a match uh, with IWA Mid-South uh, prior and that was the match that had originally put Drake Younger on the mat. I think that was back in like 2006 or something. Yeah. And so, yeah, JC Bailey just wanted to do that type of match again. And he wanted to do it against me. And dude, I, I have to rewind to the first time I met JC Bailey because, you know, like he was spending some time in jail. And on the day that he was released from jail, he showed up um, a few months prior to our Barefoot Thumbtack match at Cage of Death in December. And all of a sudden, like, J.C. Bailey is standing there backstage, fresh out of jail, you know, the, the, on the day that he le left jail, basically. Um, and I remember him greeting me for the first time. Hey, man, I'm J.C. Bailey. I'm a huge fan of yours. And I'm like, the fuck? Are you kidding me? You are a huge fan of me? No, no, sir. I'm a huge fan of yours. Mm -hmm. So we were both just, you know, like, admirers of our own work or of each other's work, I should say. And um, so, yeah, like from a creative point of view, it was fun working with him, but the pain sucked beyond belief. I remember asking Drake Younger before the match, like, hey, Drake, like, seriously, uh, how bad is it going to be? Like the Barefoot Thumbtack match? And he was like, yeah, you know, like, it sucks, but you'll be fine. 
and you know i took drake younger's word for granted but like i was not fine after that match like that was a lot of pain just a different type of pain just like the the most annoying type of pain that i can remember being in because it's your feet you know like your feet are just sensitive and in a way like it's a stupid match to do like what is the reason why two guys would want to wrestle barefoot i just wish like with some of these stipulations that there would have been like a reason to do the match types you know what i mean yeah other than let's just do like the most gnarly thing that we can imagine and you know CZW, they were promoting this match as Walking on Pins and Needles. That was the name of the show. Walking on Pins, like Thumbtacks, and Needles. So in a way, they are promoting Needles or Syringes, which was like my gimmick. So I was like, okay, I got to do something with Syringes since they are promoting it that way. And then the day of the show, DJ Hyde made it very clear to both JC and I, do not use any syringes. This match was taking place in the ECW arena. Right. Uh, the other times that we had done syringes was like outside in Delaware. And he was like, we do not want to lose this building. Do not use needles. Some things were not allowed uh, in the ECW arena, like glass. You would never see like uh, light tubes back in those days in the arena. You would see glass, but not light tubes. They were like a forbidden gimmick. Right. And uh, so were the syringes. But uh, JC Bailey insisted that we... Uh, use them and like he took me aside before the match and he was like tj like i'm gonna take all the blame on me but i really like want to get stabbed in my feet with syringes dude like i don't know if i should even tell the story but jc bailey's original idea was to get stabbed with 10 syringes through like every toe like so that the needle would come out through the through the nails of the, his toes and i was like that's i'm not no. gonna do that no. like we we got we got to figure out another way to do that that is just that's uncalled for you know that 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 would not have anything to do with wrestling that would just be a freak show type of thing like why, why would i do that like in a wrestling match you know like speaking in kayfabe like am i still trying to win the match or am i just being a sadistic yeah. motherfucker who wants to like hurt yeah. his opponent badly so uh, that's when we came up with the spot where I was in a submission. I was like close to um, not tapping out, but like the ref would lift my arm. My arm would be falling once, would be falling twice. And like the third time my arm would fall, but my feet were going up. So like the crowd's attention would be on my feet. Like, what is he doing? What is he doing with his feet? So since I was barefoot, I grabbed one of the syringes like with my toes put it from my feet to my hand and then like stabbed him in the foot, which is like the infamous um, thing. And it made sense in a way because, you know, like it was a reason for me to do the spot. I was trying to get out of the submission yeah. and I successfully got out of the submission by stabbing the motherfucker in the foot with a syringe, which I have to admit is you said it was gnarly and just like, uh, you know, a, a nasty thing to witness and it made you cringe. Dude, it made me cringe. If you look closely on the tape for like half a minute, I'm not looking at JC Bailey. Like I look at his foot. I'm like, okay, I'm aiming for it. One, two, three, stab him. As soon as I stabbed him where I wanted to stab him, I looked away. I could not bear the sight of the needle and the whole syringe sticking from his foot. Like that made me sick. 
as the other guy being in the match. So I just looked away. I looked into the audience and I was just listening. I was just waiting for the audience response because I knew that there was going to be a reaction once his manager yanked the syringe out of his foot. So as soon as I heard that response, I turned around and we continued on with the rest of the match. But um, yeah, that was a fun night at the office. Not afterwards, DJ Hyde, uh, like he was furious when we came backstage. Uh, he told the entire locker room, all the other guys, he told them to leave. And he was yelling at JC and me for half an hour. And JC Bailey, he was a man of his words. He took all the blame. He was oh, like, man. DJ, I'm sorry we did the syringes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was my idea. It's not TJ. It's not his fault. And I was just like, you know, sitting in the corner waiting uh, for DJ Hyde to be done yelling at us. And JC, he took all the blame for it. Oh, God. And he took a syringe in the foot that night, too. And he took a fucking... And he takes a spray from DJ Hyde. Oh, my God. I love so, that we finally found the line. Like, there was a line that finally yeah. someone wouldn't cross. Because <laughs> I'll tell you right now, if that spot had happened and taken place, that would be probably pretty iconic. And <laughs> maybe for all the wrong reasons, but I'm I'm glad I'm glad you guys didn't go through with it, as sick as it would have been. Sick in two ways. Um, so that was your final death match in the US. Uh, what actually made you uh, step away from that style altogether? Pain, being in pain. That's the perfectly honest um, answer to your question. It's ironic. I write about this in my book because I did a lot of reflecting, you know, um, when I finished my career and when I wrote my book and thought about the exact same question that you asked me. When did this change start to happen, like, um, within me? When, when did this switch occur where I was like, you know, like, I want to get out of this stuff. Like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. This is, this is not fun. This is just, you know, like pain. And ironically enough, the exact moment was the finals of Tournament of Death Rewind, which I won, you know. Yeah. The day, the evening where I was on top of the deathmatch scene, I was the CZW underground, ultraviolent underground champion. I was the winner of Tournament of Death. For that moment in time, like I was the top deathmatch guy, I would say on the planet. But that also happened to be the exact same night where like my spirit was broken. Um, and I can pinpoint it to one specific spot in the finals against Masada when he did the last ride powerbomb onto a platform of cinder blocks. Yeah. yeah. That legit broke my spirit. I remember like laying there. I was supposed to win the match. So I needed to kick out of the cover. And it was like all happening in slow motion in my head where the referee was counting. One. And I was thinking like, I don't want to get my shoulder up. Like, what yeah. if I don't get my shoulder up? The ref is going to count to three and I'm not going to be the winner of tournament of death. So yeah. what? And I only had like three seconds, seconds to think about it. Like, I kicked out in like the most, in, in the weakest fashion possible, just like ugh, barely lifted my arm. But that was the moment in hindsight when I knew like, okay, like this is enough. Like the, the, the pain has reached a, a limit. I, I had reached my pain limit. Like I was just like sick and tired of being in pain all the time. So that was like half a year before the match with JC Bailey. So I had like half a year to wrap my head around, you know, 
quitting quitting the death matches and um yeah i wrestled against jc in the us actually on the same day i had also wrestled drake younger in a very gnarly death match uh, for ccw they did two shows on that night so it was two death matches on my last um you know day in the us and uh wrestled one more match uh like a random uh regular match against sammy kellyanne for iwa east coast after that and yeah, then I was done with the with the US deathmatch wrestling, and I only had like one more deathmatch to do in Germany. Right. Yeah, so. that's that's where we're we're heading to next. Um, and now that you say that, now that you talk about that that spot on the cinder blocks, that's the first instance where you think to yourself, uh, this is my I don't I don't really want to do this anymore and, and feel this pain anymore. Then you have this JC Bailey match, and you just mentioned earlier in the interview about how you cried for half an hour in the shower. It that must have been confirmation to you. That's it. I have to stop doing this. So the crying and and, and being in so much pain, a second time around, six months in between, must have just been confirmation to you. I've got to stop. I have to like. As far this is just me just thinking about what might be going on in your mind. Um, yeah, most definitely. And yeah, you know, one more thing about, you know, the, the incident in the shower and just crying my heart out after the match with JC Bailey. Um, there was one guy in the room who heard me cry throughout the entire time, which was my best friend at the time, uh, Marco Eisenbart at the time he was shooting a documentary about my, my wrestling career and me being in the U S and everything crimson mask. You can look it up on Vimeo. You can watch it over there. Crimson Mask is the name of the documentary. And uh, he, he was not filming then. He was just, you know, like sitting on, on his bed and he had heard me in the shower. And like, eventually I walk out of the shower and like, he just looked at me like very seriously and, and, and just told me like, Alex, you're done. Like, like you should be done. Like he hated seeing me in so much pain. Mm. And that was reassuring as well. Like his his reaction to that wow I just thought, yeah i just thought it was uh something to bring up um but okay uh getting to my my next question um you did wrestle uh another death match uh on the april 18th of 2010 in germany uh you're supposed to face drake younger but due to a volcanic eruption in iceland uh, he couldn't make it. So instead, uh, you lost to your longtime friend, Hate, in a 200 light tube death match. How did that feel for you, you know, the last time you finally did that uh, with your longtime friend? Yeah. Um, change of plans there, right? You know, with the uh, volcanic eruption in Iceland, like nobody could fly from one continent to the other. Like the whole Atlantic was full with smoke. And it's funny because my girlfriend, like she has an Icelandic horse and she just went on her second trip to Iceland uh, just the other week. And like, she actually saw that a vulcan you know that erupted back then and like showing me the pictures of it and i was like i i i hate that that vulcan like it, it, it has a weird name that nobody in the world can ever pronounce but <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that changed our plans um and we didn't have a lot of time to reschedule you know i remember on the day of the show april 18 2010 the promoter of dubix dub tasilo jung 
early on in the morning, he called me, he told me, you know, about the volcanic eruption and there is no way for Drake Younger to travel to Germany. And he asked me like, what do you want to do? Do you want to delay the match? We can have it in half a year or, and I didn't even let him finish the sentence. And I was like, nope, we're just going to like have another opponent then. And I'm done. Like I had my mind set up like this specific date was going to be it. I was just, you know, you know, I remember that day, like I remember the entire day from work, waking up in the morning to still being in the hospital at three or four at night, getting stitched up for several hours after the match. And um, I remember everything. And yeah, w- when he asked me, like, um, do you do you want to delay the match? I was like, nope, we're just going to find another opponent. And um, that's going to be it. Um, it was actually the day before the show. There was two shows back to back, like one on Saturday, one on Sunday or something. So, you know, um, hate jumped in my good friend. He was like my mentor, like my, my father figure from my early days in Dubbixed Up. Um, I have had quite a few matches with him and he was the guy who gave me my break. You know, a lot of people maybe don't know this, but hate, he was, you know, the, um, the guy who ran WXW in its early days, in the Wild West days, all the way up right. until 2006. So he used to be the owner of WXW, the one who really, like, you know, created it. And in a way, you know, it was poetic. It, it was just my, my story coming full circle. I had started with hate. I ended with hate. Yeah, sure enough, part of me was sad that I couldn't face Drake Younger, but facing hate was the more emotional type of match and um yeah it was announced as a 200 light tubes match we actually ended using 360 light tubes (laughs) it was madness like this was it was not reckless or anything It, it was just a lot of light tubes but like everything was fairly safe um but like it was like in a way it was the most intense death match i ever did with this one, I didn't care about the pain. Like, I was like, just get through the last one and go out with a bang, quite literally. Break as many light tubes as possible. Just, you know, like, create this this big visual of, you know, a ring filled with glass afterwards. Just break as much shit as possible without breaking a bone, basically. <laughs> which is what we ended up doing. And he was a pleasure to work with. He was really nervous about it. Uh, he was yeah. so self-cautious where he was like, man, like I'm just a replacement. Like, I feel so bad that you cannot wrestle Drake. And I was telling him before the match, no, 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 hate. Like, this is fine. Like I, in a way I prefer this. I prefer wrestling you in my last death match. And I trusted the guy, you know, I put my life in his hands. He put his life in mine. There was actually a moment in this match that could have ended very badly. I mean, as in Nick Gage incident type of badly, because I was like doing an elbow drop. I had put like a, what do you call these things? These lock cabins, light tube lock cabins on top of him. And I was doing an elbow drop off the top rope. He was rolling out of the way. I landed in the light tubes. That part was fine. But then the light tube um, lock cabin pieces were like broken and sticking up. And I was leaning backwards. And I was just going to puncture my back, kind of like where your lung is, leaning backwards yeah. into this broken lock cabin. And Haid actually saw it. Like, you can see it on the tape, and he's pushing me into the other direction. He saved my life. Like, I still got a puncture wound from it. And you can see it to this day. Like, that's why I needed to get massive surgery on that day, because it was like 
a chunk of meat the size of like a uh, the size of like a child's fist that they would have to take out of my bag and replace like with whatever they put in there and like stitch it all up like with the drainage and everything like it was nasty it was bad and um but yeah afterwards i was just you know like i, I was in a lot of pain but on that night the pain is not the most the thing i remember the most but just you know this overwhelming feeling of of relief of knowing okay this part of my career is over with i don't need to do this anymore this is the last death match that i'll ever do and i'm fine with it i've reached everything i wanted to reach when it comes to death matches and so yeah i was actually quite glad to retire from that Right. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's April 18th, 2010. Uh, and we'll get to October 2nd. Um, but you know, there's a few months in between there. How was the transition away from doing deathmatch style wrestling to just doing regular style wrestling? And, and I guess another question I have is, is how long was it until your body after all these years started to feel maybe like back to normal before October 2nd, or if, even if. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. And I'm glad you're asking it because nobody has ever asked me that question in that way. How long did it take for my body to heal up after deathmatch wrestling? I want to say that in August of that year, that was like four months after the last deathmatch that's when my body really peaked. Like I was all healed up. I was in good shape. It was summer. I was working out a lot. And, um, you know, I was in, in the best shape of my career, which is eventually what, you know, saved me from ending up in a wheelchair with the accident in the last match that we we're going to get to. And yeah, doing the transition, you know, um, it was fun. It was, I, I just remember that half year after my last death match and before the injury, I remember that part of my career very fondly. It was just like a fun summer. It was just easy, you know, compared to death matches and being in pain all the time. In a way, you know, like some people were concerned for me back then. And I remember uh, Christian Jacobi, who used to be one of the guys who ran Dubbix Dub back in the day. Um, like he took me aside once and he was like, after having seen like my first few matches, uh, normal matches, once I was done with death matches, he took me aside and he was like, Alex, I kind of have the feeling this is worse on your body, what you're doing now than what you did with the death matches. <laughs> because I was replacing all the gimmicks with a lot of stiffness. We're just talking like stiff shoot headbutts, you know, like a call shoot, a work shoot where you would tell your opponent like, hey, I'm going to do the spot in the match where I'm going to ask the audience, shh to be quiet and once everything is quiet you could hear a needle drop i'm gonna hit you with like the stiffest headbutt and you're just gonna hear this type of sound like that's the thing that i would do in most of my matches and just like in general like I, you know like take take bumps onto concrete and stuff like that so i, I was not necessarily segueing into the healthiest type of regular wrestling but you know i, I was just you know working a style that I as a fan enjoyed. Yeah. And um back then I kind of saw the light at the end of the tunnel because you know the idea with me and Dubik Stub was okay, once I'm done with the last death match, let me do one more year. Let me do one more year of regular wrestling. I can concentrate on my career in Europe. The US is not gonna book me if I don't do death matches. I, I was well aware of that. 
I was not like on the level of, I don't know, like some of the guys in Ring of Honor who could just like have fantastic matches. I could have good matches, but you know, like um, not the best technical wrestler in the world. I'm no Brian Danielson or whatnot. So yeah, still, that was a fun, fun phase. I included like some MMA type of things into my repertoire. That was fun. I remember one match in particular wrestling against Alexander Wolf, who was just released from, you know, his NXT UK deal. And he was just coming up back in those days over here in Germany. I had a fun match with him. So yeah, uh, it was a fun summer. Good summer without a whole bunch of pain. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Um, so we'll we'll get to it now. Uh, it's October 2nd, 2010 at WXW's uh, Hates Fucking Birthday Show. Uh, during a match, you took a powerbomb from Masada that didn't go as expected and fractured your seventh thoracic vertebrae. And the next day you announced your retirement. Um, so please uh, take us through that day, the moment that it happened, uh, and the next day finding out, you know what, that's it. Yeah. Um, I remember like both Masada and I, we were both not on the top of our game on that day. He was jet lagged from his trip to Germany and I was dealing with some, you know, like personal issues. And I remember the moment before we started the sequence that would be the spot where I injured myself because it was actually like a counter to a counter. We um, had established this sequence of moves in our previous matches where I would go for a tornado DDT out of the corner, but he would like segue into a powerbomb position which is like the spot that broke my spirit a year prior, a tournament right. of the rewind. And now that would be the spot that would actually break my spine. So I was going to counter the powerbomb attempt with a hurricanrana. And it was an accident. Like there's nobody I can blame. Our timing was just a tidbit off. Um, both of us messed, messed up the spot 50-50, I want to say. It's not his fault. It's not my fault. It just happened. It was an odd accident. But I remember starting that sequence, you know, like in the opposite corner of the ring. It was going to be whipping, reversal, get the boot up, tornado, powerbomb, hurricane rana counter. And I remember like starting the sequence thinking, Alex, concentrate on this one. This is tricky. Like this is a tricky sequence. Concentrate on it. And do you know like how sometimes when you just have a brain fart, like you know you're supposed to concentrate on something, but you just don't? Like it was one of those things where when we did the spot, I was just like, I was too much in an autopilot. And, you know, it, in a way it was also like my mistake because I didn't, you know, um, snap my, my head, um, you know, to the back of my neck when like you're supposed to when you do a hurricane rana. And he yeah. also like messed up the timing. So those two things just came together. I just basically, you know, for people who haven't seen it, um, most people probably remember the landing when Sabu broke his neck in the match against Chris Benoit with the knee breaker that ended yeah. up being like a suplex where Sabu landed on his head. It was that type of a landing. Okay. And yeah. I immediately like <clears throat> knew something was wrong, but I didn't know to which extent. Like I was just, you know, like going onto autopilot as in checking my, um, 
you know, like my arms and my legs. And I could tell, okay, like I can still use my fingers. I can use my arms. I feel my legs. It cannot be that bad is what I thought. Um, I just thought it was like, I don't know, like um, something else. I didn't think it was like a, a broken spine, you know? So I continued the match and took, bumps a bunch of bumps actually i remember taking masada's brain buster that probably didn't help um i'm never gonna know but it, it might be that the vertebrae was probably just cracked from landing on my head and then we did the brain buster later on which folded me up like an accordion and maybe that's what actually made it break off completely i don't know um but yeah, that match was supposed to be a long one, like a 30-minute match. We cut it a little short, but we still, like, I think we ended up wrestling, like, 22 minutes or so. And the accident happened halfway through the match. So, yeah, I continued wrestling with a broken spine, which is quite crazy. And, you know, like, in a weird way, um, it, that kind of gives me a lot of peace of mind when it comes to my last performance. Because for many years... I was very bitter about it. I was bitter about ending my career with an injury because you don't see that coming, you know, like uh, I, I just like felt I was being robbed by, by, by destiny or whatever of going into my last match, knowing that it was going to be like my last match. I never had that experience. Like all of a sudden my career was done. And for me, it was just like a random show that I was working on a random Saturday against a guy that I really love working with, Masada. <clears throat> And, um, but it gives me a lot of peace of mind uh, when I look at it in, in terms of kayfabe or in terms of like the character Thumbtack Jack, not the real life person, Alexander Petronovsky, but like in terms of the character Thumbtack Jack, that dude broke his spine, continued a match, ended up winning it, whatever, because that was the booking on the day. That's, that's a picture perfect ending in a way it's not the ending that i would have preferred nobody wants to end their career on on those terms but in a way like there is some poetry to that you know what i mean kind of like okay here's this deathmatch guy he's taken all these horrible bumps in deathmatch wrestling now he's done with deathmatch wrestling he continues wrestling on in regular matches injures himself breaks his spine but still continues the match and even manages to make his opponent submit, which was only one of two times in my career where I made an opponent submit with a new move that was going to be my new finishing move that I was going to establish that night. Well, you only saw that finishing move once. But <laughs> um, you, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, in a way, it, it is a poetic ending to my weird career, you know? Yeah. Absolutely, bro. And then before I throw it to Jack, I had another thought in my mind. You, you announce your retirement, you, you, you're done, but all these years you've had this creative outlet, which is performing live. How did you fill that void within yourself once you knew that you weren't going to be able to perform in the ring anymore? Ooh, that was a tough phase of my life. Those were tough, I want to say like three and a half maybe even four years until i you know had some peace of mind with it all and you know like i'm looking back on it now and the injury is like almost what 11 years ago that's longer than my career was like at this point i've been out of the business longer than i was in the business but 
the kicker is this i got into the business when I, when i was just you know like um not quite an adult i was still like in this adolescing phase of my life starting to become an adult but i i wasn't quite there yet so performing to me for the longest time of my life of my early life of my youth basically was just normal i didn't know it any other way like as long as i had been an adult i had always been a performer it's not like i started my career late in my 30s like batista no no like you know on my 18th birthday i wrestled my first death match you know I, I was already a guy who had done this this thing two years before i ever turned 18 so there i was at the age of 25 the doctor at the hospital tells me like uh you just broke your spine. <laughs> and I was like, fuck. Um, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> and, you know, like the psychological aspect of it was much, much harder than recovering from the injury. With the injury itself, I, I got so lucky. And I always like had to remind myself of that. Dude, like you got so lucky. Most guys would have ended up in the wheelchair. And that was my first question at the hospital. Like, why am I not in a wheelchair? I remember asking the doctor and he was like, well, you, you're lucky that you, you are in good shape. You know, like your torso, you're pretty muscular. At that time I was, and that's what prevented me from um, actually, you know, damaging my spine to a point where I cannot walk anymore. So it took me like eight months is that fair? Probably like 10 months to really rebuild my body where I was in the same shape that I had been before the accident. But like rebuilding myself psychologically, that took years. And, you know, I don't know if I can give you an answer to, to, to how I dealt with it, but you, you mentioned that, you know, I, how do you fill this void? How do you fill this void of being a performer and, Basically, what that means, especially with deathmatch wrestling, you are an addict to adrenaline. Like, what I was dealing with was not different from a guy who was on drugs, who was addicted to drugs, and then you're coming off of the drugs. Part of me is always going to be an addict. You know, I'm just sober, quote unquote, at this point, you know, where I've learned to deal with the fact that, okay, living a normal life is not going to mean feeling a guaranteed adrenaline kick every weekend when you perform. But that took me a long, long time. And I have to give a lot of credit to Matthew Nicomondo here, who stuck by my side uh, throughout all that, you know, growing period after my career ended. Uh, I contacted him for the first time once I was done with my career. And, you know, like he just guided me and helped me and other friends did as well. And um, my partners did, but uh, he was like a, a really great help to just give me a different perspective of like, you know, like reconditioning me of Alex, you are a person of worth. Every person is of worth. You don't need to do something where an audience cheers you on. And with deathmatch wrestling, let's be honest, it's something destructive. You're doing something destructive and it's kind of perverted that that is the thing that gives you a positive response from the audience. The more you hurt yourself, the more we're going to love you. And it was hard for me to recondition myself where I understood like, wait, like 
I'm a valuable person, even if I don't hurt myself, you know? Right. Awesome. Um, so thank you so much for uh, answering that and, and being so honest. Uh, you know, that, that was an amazing answer. Um, over to you, Jack. Uh, yeah, that's probably one of the, um, <clears throat> out of the podcasts I've done, it's probably one of the best answers we've had to a question that we've well, asked at that, that sort of level, you know, like we've had, we've, um, we've spoken to a lot of, a lot of people who have had very challenging periods in their careers and um and even especially after the fact and i feel like that was um that was very fat like very fascinating and interesting especially given the circumstances of uh the injury which of course you know a broken spine it's just insane to even think about for uh, most people let alone you know people in professional wrestling that which can be somewhat common depending on who you ask and who you talk to but getting back into the sort of the uh, tail end of this interview here, we got um, the w, WXW Hall of Fame in 2010. I mean, that must've been sort of, um, that's when you know you've kind of, yeah, you've you've completed it sort of thing. Because that's where you've started and now where you've started and who have put you on the map, they're sort of, uh, you know, saying, you know, you're a mortal. How was that whole experience for you? What was, um, how was the Hall of Fame? Very bittersweet. That was just two months after the injury. At that point, I had rebuilt my body to a point where I could at least walk without crutches. But I was basically like walking like a stiff robot, like my torso, like I, I couldn't bend it. I, I had to be straight the entire time um, to help the spine heal. And I was being inducted with two other companions, and one of them was hate. So he was getting inducted into the Hall of Fame on the same evening that I was. So that was nice to, to bring it all full circle, like my whole career, as you said, so eloquently, like it started in Dub and it ended in Dub. But yeah, it, it was a sad and happy evening. You know, I said in my Hall of Fame speech, like nobody wants to retire at the end of 25, at, at the age of 25, you know? And, you know, like, it, it, hindsight 2020 you know at that time like when i was diagnosed with the broken spine like what never happened to me was that a doctor had a conversation with me if i could ever continue on wrestling i never had that experience that a lot of like guys in w or in wwe for example would have where doctors tell them like i'm sorry to tell you this but you're done like you're you're not medically cleared to wrestle anymore it's just something that I assumed, you know, like I, I was in shock when the doctor told me you broke your spine and I just reckoned, well, that, that's it then. Like I cannot wrestle anymore. So I was the one who made the call. It was not a doctor. As we said, like 10 months later, I was in good health again and I was completely healed from the injury. And I don't know if I had known that back then, like on the day of the injury, would I have retired the next day? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, I just remember the Hall of Fame. It's it's bittersweet, but you know, like I, I'm looking at the Hall of Fame ring right now, like it's here on my wall. So it's it's something that I hold uh, hold on to very dearly. As you said, like it, it immortalizes you in a way being put into a Hall of Fame. And um, in the end, you know, like for the character Thumbtack Jack, there wasn't that much left to do. Like the story of that character had come full circle. So it is what yeah, exactly. it is, man. And unless you were going to somewhere like, you know, WWE to wrestle or uh, anywhere else that would have been major at the time. And I mean, can, can um, I say something about yes, that? Sir? Because yeah. that, that was actually a struggle that I had, to be honest, uh, if we sure. want to take a deep dive, like psychologically here, 
uh, because it wasn't that long after my career ended that Moxley got hired by WWE. Right, and yes, I remember, yeah. like, this was 2011 when he started being in the de developmental system. And I remember him in 2011 doing an interview where he was being asked about WWE. Hey, is that a thing on your radar? Do you think you could ever work for WWE? Do you think they know who you are? And he answered, like, they have no clue. They don't know who John Moxley is. They don't see any of the stuff I do on the indies. I'm never going to end up there. A few months later, he ends up there because without him knowing, he was already on their radar. All I'm trying to say is I don't necessarily think that I was on WWE's radar. Most likely I wasn't. But for the longest time, I really had some bitterness in me because I, like with my career, I had the feeling for a while that I hadn't, dreamed big enough wwe was never my goal and that has to do with me being a european and wrestling in the early 2000s you know like nxt uk and all that that started being a thing in the mid 2010s when i was working like you didn't see that on the horizon you didn't see the possibility on the horizon that a european person could ever wrestle for wwe so it was never a goal of mine but then when I started seeing my colleagues ending up in WWE, my former colleagues like Moxley, Greg Younger, and others, that's when I realized like, oh, having done death matches does not disqualify you from maybe ending up in WWE. And I always thought I'm European, that disqualifies me from going to WWE, and I'm a deathmatch guy. So those are two things that disqualify me from ever having a chance to go to WWE. So that was never my dream. And that was a weird phase in like 2011, 2012, 2013 to, to deal with, with that, you know? Yeah, to deal with the fact that in a way like, I didn't dream big enough. So if yeah. I can say any, anything like motivational for people out there, don't be afraid to dream big, you know? Yeah, definitely, man. Don't be afraid to dream big. That's, uh, that's true. Like, um, you know, it's, it's, and it's insane to think about how many people that are, you know, have gone into WWE that we used to watch like, you know, on the internet, you know, in the, in the early uh, 2010s, late 2000s, even earlier. Um, like John Moxley, et cetera. Like you never would have expected them to sort of get to the point they are now. But of course you have um, other circumstances. I also feel like that may have stopped you, of course, being just fine. But on the 7th of May, 2016, you actually had another match. Um, I actually- I uh, didn't. <laughs> didn't. I was going to say, <laughs> Jack, I wasn't sure if it was true or not, but like this was what was in the research. So it's, it's, oh. it's, it's a myth somewhere on Wikipedia. Don't oh. believe the internet. Sorry, George. But go on. Nelson, <laughs> uh, who lost his toughest motherfucker of Europe trophy title to you. Um, so apparently this is that. It was on, it was on cagematch.net. I don't know. I was like, oh, maybe yeah, you, you know, like it, it was. It was just a random thing, like 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 a funny segment in the Netherlands. And when I retired, I was actually like the Dutch toughest motherfucker of Europe, whatever. Like it was a title that I had and that I retired with, basically. So just like kind of like as a throwback to the ah. past, we did like a fun thing where I rolled the guy up. But it was not a match. Like, all it was was like I kicked him in the balls and I covered him. Like all the other guys did the match. Like I was never officially in the match. Like I was just like in a like I was the commissioner of the show or something or the host of the show. And then just like 
when the champion you know was like kind of uh being beaten down i just like announced okay and now i'm part of the match kicked him in the balls covered him here i am reclaiming my my trophy I do. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd never even heard about this ever happening. Um, I'd even thought it was a little unusual to see this here. And I was just like, I mean, this guy's broken his spine. He's done for good. But here he is. is his, uh, he, won a, he won a trophy. So you know, that's a great <laughs> little story there. That's a nice little tidbit. So it worked out nice there, Carl. Um, but I, lo I love that someone took the time to add that to cage match. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we are going to go to sort of, um, you know, I do want to talk about... Uh, Three more topics before we do the uh, five second frenzy and our outro and all that fun stuff, Carl. So um, I do want to talk about what you're doing today um, as working for WWE as the content manager for the German YouTube channel. How's that experience been for you? And um, how, how did uh, you actually end up getting in touch with uh, WWE to do a role like that? Yeah, I did that like in 2015 and 2016, but now yep. I'm still working as a producer, but I segued into working for German television. But yeah, wow. um, in 2015, I started working for WWE behind the scenes, WWE Germany to be specific. I managed their YouTube channel. And how did that come about? Um, basically just through vitamin B. You know a guy who knows the guy yeah. and then you get up, you know, being in the right spot at the right time. It was funny because they were looking for someone, WWE Germany, that is, with a very specific skill set. They needed someone who has a deep understanding of the wrestling business and who has a deep understanding of SEO, search engine optimization. Yes. Which just happened to be the job that I had done the years prior. So after my career, the first real job that I did was work in SEO for a couple of years. So I had like those two unique skill sets that nobody else had. And um, basically, you know, like there was this company who was shooting videos for WWE whenever they would have house shows, <clears throat> live events <Yes>. in Germany. <laughs> and the camera guy of that crew, he had done an interview with me for like uh, a friend of ours who was studying at the time. And um, so, yeah, he just like recommended me and he was like, hey, like I remember this guy, like this Alex, like he he wrestled for like 10 years or something and he does SEO at the moment. Hey, like you want to ask him like if he's interested and do it like WWE asked and sure I was interested. Like it's so weird because like, it's funny, like I, just 10 minutes ago, like I talked about like this bitterness that I had in like, 2011, 2012, 2013, like, I never dreamed big enough. I never dreamed of working for WWE. And then in 2015, all of a sudden I'm working for WWE. Like, I didn't see that coming. That came out of the blue. Yeah. They just needed a guy with my skill set. And I happened to be the guy. I lived in the same town as WWE Germany's office. You know, they have their office in Munich, which is where I live. So, it all worked out great. I did that for a while. That was fun. And um, yeah, good memories. Awesome, man. Did you, did you ever like make any visits over to um, Stanford and visit Titan Towers or anything nah, like that? We, no? we just concentrated on the life events over here in, um, you know, in Germany. We would shoot yeah. stuff and we would shoot a lot of content when WWE was in Germany. But no, I didn't ever do any trips to Stanford. But uh, I remember very fondly <laughs> brings a big smile to my face the first time i got my pay 
like in Germany, there's no paychecks. You just like get a money transfer on your bank account. And like, I remember the first time the, the bank transfer said WWE, Stamford, Connecticut. I was like, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Getting money from WWE. That's every wrestling fan's dream, man. We're always, we're always the one giving them money. Well, they just yeah right for once right like <laughs> uh, so moving forward a little bit more as well uh, I do want to get your thoughts on uh, today's deathmatch wrestling scene with uh, GCW uh, the return of FMW um, in a different way where everything they do has to be a fucking explosion um, and basically just the state of it in my in my opinion to just start everything off I do feel like it's sort of um, it's sort of peaking in popularity at the moment but I'll leave the rest to you yeah. Um, if you would have asked me this half a year ago, my answer would have been differently. I talk about this with Nick Mondo all the time, like the state of the current deathmatch scene. And, you know, you never want to be the grumpy old guy who used to do that. And ah, look at the kids these days. They are doing everything wrong. We had it all figured out. I don't want to be that guy. But um, for, for the longest time, for a bunch of years, I had this feeling of, oh, my God, like this is starting to become so reckless what the guys are doing on the U.S. deathmatch scene in particularly, especially game changer wrestling. Like for yeah. a while, there were a few tournaments of survivals where I was like, guys, like, um, what, what are you doing? Like, it, it seemed to me for a while that it was just, you know, like a competition of the guys trying to see who can get the worst injury and that would be the hero of the nice like who could get who could get sliced up in the worst way possible and yeah. he's going to be the hero like no that's not how, how it's supposed to work and guys would you know do reckless stuff in the first rounds of tournaments like bumping into razor blades which is something i did once in my career and when i did it i made sure that it was highlighted I briefed the camera guy. I told him how to shoot it, which angle, when to get the close up. I told him when I was going to like, you know, uh, pose for the camera basically so he could film the cuts on my back and whatever. Just making sure that, you know, you get the most out of it. And then guys are bumping into razor blades in the first round of a tournament outside of the ring where like five guys can see it, like the five people in the front row, but there's no spotlight on it. Maybe the camera doesn't even catch it. The rest of the audience never sees it because it happens outside the ring. Stuff like that. That's just one example. But, you know, like, that's like um, the reckless nature of, of, of the deathmatch scene. But, um, yeah, I made an effort to watch Tournament of Death, uh, pardon, Tournament of Survival uh, 6, which happened this year, 2021. Um you know, because my close friend Matt, he was getting inducted into the Hall of Fame, the Game Changer Wrestling Hall of Fame the previous day. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll check it out. Like, um, yeah. he had talked to me like about the show and, and I was kind of curious. So I checked it out and I was like, okay, the guys are starting to wrap their head around it in the right way. Like yeah. they, they are starting to slow it down and starting to accentuate the spot. And it's not just like, I have the feeling it, it's not as reckless as it used to be in prior years. They will still do gnarly stuff, but they will time it much better these days. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if there's a big spot happening, they make sure to milk it, to set it up, 
to make sure that the crowd has some anticipation and boom, then they do the spot rather than just spot, 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 where it becomes a big clusterfuck of things. So um, yeah, that's that, that's the thing with Game Changer Wrestling. There's a bunch of guys where I feel like uh, I would have had a lot of fun working with them. Uh, this Atticus guy, if he would have been around when I was wrestling, we could have had a great match, I feel like. Um, and as far as FMW Explosion is concerned, I haven't seen any of the content they have put out how many shows have they done only one or two right one or two yeah i remember the first show was in like what looked like a flea market of some sort um okay it looked uh like it's still anita and all the boys doing the usual stuff they were doing you know 20 30 years ago but it's um just them all they're all just old and it's all just the same old thing we saw before the exploding bats um the exploding right. barbed wire and all that sort of stuff i think they've done one two shows maybe tops no more than that though yeah yeah the thing is like there would be a place for that but doing it just like every show like this is our gimmick we are the explosion guys every show is going to be explosions everything is going to be the same it's just going to be blah like as you described it's going to be the feeling of i've seen this before you know like give me something new give me a new spin to it all and um yeah you know like um i don't necessarily uh think that's the right approach to 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 milk it for more than it is worth you know yeah um, and i did like say uh, like here and read as well not too sure you know if i'm going to say i'm going to read something it's by a journalist or wrestling site you know credibility is in question but i did read that onita was like he did see the appeal in um you know the AEW revolution of this year and was like oh maybe if there's still an interest in that market i can bring this style back so um, it would be interesting and to see how just it's just go. just just yeah. one more thing real quick because that's uh, like I'm trying to put myself into like Unida's head here. Um, this is one thing about like my career which ended at the end of you know like at the beginning of the 2010s I should say in 2010. We didn't have the same cameras back then that we have nowadays. Yeah. So to me, that would be a reason, and I think it is for Unida um hey how about we do like this 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 thing this explosion stuff nowadays where we have better technical equipment because all the old japan matches are vhs tapes and you know yeah. they, they they don't have the best quality they don't necessarily stand the test of time it just looks like some some underground stuff those old tapes and i, I think that's a part of the reasoning as well for for a guy like onida to be like you know like i did all these matches i was in so much pain and all i have to show for it are grizzly vhs tapes <laughs> i'm gonna do the same stuff but this time i'm gonna do it in high quality you know <laughs> high definition. to do it in 4k yes exactly that's actually a pretty good mindset of doing it like maybe he wants to do it in as many different just in all the areas of media man as many as he can like you know in 20 years time he's gonna be doing death matches and holograms so we'll see how it goes <laughs> um of course i think this will be a, a bit of a Trey, for you to talk about um, you getting away from wrestling. I think we have spoken enough about wrestling for one show. Um, there, there does come a point where there does get enough wrestling, and I think we've hit that point. So we do want to talk about you coming to Australia. Um, yes. So everyone, everyone that listens to the show knows that we are in Perth, Western Australia. And one of the biggest reasons that I re like followed you is the fact that you still post a lot of your Australian travels on Instagram. And obviously the fact that you're, you're Thumbtack Jack, but I found it was 
awesome that you were um, shouting out Australia in your description, in your bio, sorry, um, that you were talking about Australia all the time. So I really wanted to take the opportunity to give you just to talk about your time in Australia. And more particularly, what fascinates me is the fact that you were in our state for a pretty prolonged period of time. And, you know, I just, it just sort of blows my mind that uh, someone like yourself would come all the way over here to Western Australia, a place where people mostly disregard in the world and um, spend a lot of time here. So tell us about your time here. Um, what made you come all the way over to the most isolated city in the world? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, Perth, Australia is the most isolated city in the world. And that in and of itself has a unique charm. And, you know, in the mind of a lot of Europeans, um, when they think of Australia, they think of, think of Sydney and of Melbourne, yes, maybe of exactly. Brisbane, but, but that's probably it. That's probably all the cities that people uh, can, you know, like think of. And the charm of uh, the charm of Australia being, you know, a German, that's the other end of the world. Like to me, if you look at the globe, like that's pretty much the other end of the world. Technically, it would be New Zealand, but, you know, Australia is close enough. So in that way, it always had like this fascination to me, kind of like, yeah, that's that's as far away as you can get from things. You know, I've been to the US plenty of times and I cherish those memories but, you know, like Europe and uh, America, the American continent, that's not that much of a distance. You know, it's, it's just like a, a rather short flight. But however, going to Australia, if you want to go to Perth from Germany, you're going to fly for 19 hours. If you want to go to Sydney and you get the best connection possible, you're going to travel for 23 and a half hours. So you're going to travel for an entire day if you have a good connection. If you have a bad one, you're going to, travel for one and a half days yeah <laughs> and I, I always make sure to have good connections you know to fly from munich to doha and from doha to um australia and the first time i went there was very spontaneously when um the wwe germany project ended and i was like okay what do i do now hmm and uh, i just asked my girlfriend like how do you feel about going to australia in like two or three weeks and she was on board, so we booked flights and went there on a spontaneous vacation. The first time around, we just like did the thing that you would expect, you know, like we flew into Sydney and we traveled all the way up the East Coast and, um, you know, all the way up to Cairns, where we ended up, you know, going to the Great Barrier Reef, did all the fun stuff, you know, go to the Koala Park, Koala Sanctuary in Brisbane. Um, and then at the end of the trip, flew back to Melbourne, checked that out. So, okay, that was my share of the East Coast. That was cool to experience. And I loved everything about it. You know, Australia to me is like the perfect combination of certain things that I find in the US and that I find in Europe and that I cherish. So Australians, they are as polite as British people are, but their landscape is as vast as the US American landscape. One could even argue that in a way Australia's <laughs> landscape is even cooler because you have all these different climatic zones. You have the subtropics, tropics all the way up in the north. Of course, you have the desert in the middle. You have European climate as well in Melbourne and you have everything like it's six or seven climatic zones that you have in Australia, which is um, quite unique. Like you don't have that in Europe. Like all I could do in Europe is basically, I don't know, go to Spain and it's a little warmer than Germany. And 
if I want to, I can go to Moscow and that's going to be cold. But the variety of the landscape in Australia is just mind blowing to me. And I don't know, like people who've never been, I don't know if they understand how, um, like the US is rather densely populated, at least in some areas like New York City and whatnot. Australia is the opposite. Like how many million people are living in Australia? Like 30 million or something, 35 million, maybe 40 million? Pretty sure there's far less. I um, oh, actually, I, I'm gonna go to what, twenty something it. million. Yeah, it's, I know it's probably not a lot. Like if you compare it to the U.S., where it's like three hundred fifty million or something ridiculous, um, the U.S. No. population is we are, different. We've got twenty five million over here. Twenty five million. <laughs> there you go. That that's kind of cute to think of. You know, like me, I'm a German. We have like eighty something million Germans. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, Australia is like less than a third of the population of Germany, but it's like so much bigger. The country is its own continent. And um, I love everything about it, man. Like, I, I love the Australian mentality, especially, you know, being being a German. Everything is like very strict and organized. And blah. and in Australia, everybody is just like, whatever. No like, worries, no worries. Mike. No worries, Mike. No worries, Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of like, like I, I don't want to talk in cliches too much but it's kind of like the california vibe of going on yeah. with your life just like kind of like carefree but um yeah at the same time australians they are just like uh, super polite and they are so guest friendly that's also the thing since you guys are so isolated australians are so very guest friendly it's unbelievable it was mind-blowing <laughs> to me to to, to to experience that and so yeah i love the first trip where i did the east coast and then i decided to come back in early 2018 and that's when i had a longer stay in australia i used all my years of vacation i took six weeks off to go to australia and i started my trip in perth this time because i wanted to see the other part of the country i had seen the east coast now i wanted to see the west coast the only city that you can fly into is pretty much perth you could also go to darwin which is all the way up north but you know um i flew into perth and then basically took a trip down the west coast from perth like down the margaret river region um all the way up the coastline to esperance which is paradise like if, if, if there's a place in the world where I want to die, it's Esperance. It's just like <laughs> but the, the water is uh, this turquoise kind of color. It, it's like it's like a dream. It's 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 so beautiful over there. And um, yeah, then then I continued on on the coastline. Eventually, once um, like I was in the middle of the, the continent, I drove all the way up north uh on on the Stewart highway to see uluru and all the fun stuff and then eventually took a turn to the right and ended up on the northern part of the east coast again um you know with the with the subtropics uh townsville and cairns and and these places so yeah like in a span of six weeks like i've driven through all the climatic zones of australia and like that was the ultimate freedom. Like talk yeah. about the trip of a lifetime. Like Matt keeps telling me that over and over again. Like Alex, the trip you took to Australia in 2018, that is so unheard of. I've never heard of anybody do a trip like that. It was just me that time. I didn't fly there with my girlfriend, but it was just me. Like, and I rented this vehicle that I could sleep in like a long stretched vehicle. 
And um, yeah, I just drove up and down the the country and, you know, like wherever the wind would take me. Um, that was fantastic. That, Amazing. That, that is such a beautiful country. And I talked about this with Jack um, a few months ago where I asked him, like, which parts of Australia have you guys you seen? And um, you oh, haven't no. seen nearly as much as I have, right? Like you've no. never left Fuck Western Jack. Australia. You've seen, I mean, I have left, I've left Western Australia. Actually, a fun fact. I don't know if you know about this car. I've been to Germany. I've been to Germany before. I've there been to Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Um, okay. In fact, I was in Los Angeles the day of 9-11. But anyway, that's a different story for another day. Um, no, actually, for where I've been in Australia, I've um, got family down in Victoria. Uh, so I have left Western Australia, but only to Victoria. Um, I don't think I've visited any other states or seen any other places. In terms of Western Australia, Bunbury, Bosselton, maybe a bit of Margaret River. Dunsborough. Bunbury is yeah. nice. I went to swim with the dolphins over there. They have like this dolphin sanctuary where it's like free wild dolphins. And sometimes you get lucky and you can swim with them. So that was fun. Dude, like I, I experienced like all the wildlife in Australia, like in the um, like Great Barrier Reef. I, yeah. I, the scuba, like I did the scuba diving in the Great Barrier Reef and like forest split moment in time i was like face to face with a reef shark which is not like the great white shark in jaws but like it, it's, it's a reef <laughs> shark you know like he just looked at me and kind of like was scouting me like what, what the type of a weird fish are you like <laughs> and he swam away and I don't, I don't know man like i got attacked by so many jellyfish um had some gnarly experiences with jellyfish saw the big spiders saw the big snakes almost stepped on one of the deadliest snakes once um but there's also cute koala bears so not all of australia is going to try to kill you you know <laughs> i mean that's look, hilarious uh, i bet the jellyfish were like oh here's some big deathmatch wrestler well, ah, here we go <laughs> dude that was so bad like that was actually like um in a way that could have been a life-threatening situation with with the jelly like the nastiest jellyfish attack that uh, I can remember, like I was, I, I was attacked by three of them, and oh. one really clung onto my arm. Like for like six weeks, uh, you could like see all the tentacles on my arm. Like every single one of them, my arm was just completely red. And I had swam out away from 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 the beach for a kilometer. I remember that precisely because they had those markers, like those those shark markers, a kilometer out. Um, Oh, that was nasty, man. Like, uh, you know, and, you know, then my arm was starting to, you know, kind of be like, uh, how do you say, like a limb just or just like where you cannot move it anymore. Very numb. And try to swim back a kilometer to the shoreline if you only have one arm. That is fun. That was rather <laughs> late in the evening. So all the coastline guards, they had already gone um, to, you know, finish up their day somewhere else. So there was nobody on the beach. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, I got two options here. I can either drown and die, or I try to swim back to the shoreline with one arm. So I did the latter. Took me an hour. Uh, that was fun. I, I remember like going back to the a ho hostel the youth hostel that i was staying at and the guy at the counter he just looked at me and looked at my arm bright red and he was like how far out there did you swim and i was like far a kilometer and he just shook his head and he's like dude i've worked here for 10 years you're you are only the second person 
that was ever attacked by jellyfish here. So. <laughs> well, luckily, you weren't swimming back in Esperance. Otherwise, you might have just been like, well, perfect place to die. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, eh? Pretty much. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Well, Jack, I mean, uh, uh, are we done talking about Perth here? I mean, we could talk about this all night, or should we get to five seconds? I mean, I think this is our first guest that we've had that has actually, I mean, other than Bob Holly. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, uh, it just, you know what? It really upsets me that we weren't in touch with Alex. I can call him Alex oh. now. I feel like we're personal yeah. friends now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It upsets me that we didn't know him in 2018. We could have hung out, you know? So, Alex, you're going to have to come man, back over. And I'll come over there. You are invited. Be my guest, both of you. But, uh, you know, like, seriously, like, the pandemic is going to be over one of these days. I just looked it up the other day. Like, at the moment, it looks like, you know, Australia is still being closed off to uh, outsiders, to people from other continents and countries. Um, And it will be for the foreseeable future. It doesn't look like Australia is going to open up again anytime before mid-2022 at the earliest. New Zealand, however, might open up their borders again in early 2022. So I'm thinking about maybe doing that, maybe taking a trip to New Zealand because I haven't seen um that part of you know your end of the world yet but dude like australia like there's so much to discover like you could spend a lifetime there and still never see all of it all of its beauty yeah and (laughs) but guys you are so lucky like to anybody out there who's like contemplating well once the pandemic is over where should i go to take a vacation i can highly recommend perth like the region that you guys live in, especially if you drive from Perth uh, down south, uh, it's just like 350 kilometers until you get to the point where the two oceans meet, the Arctic Ocean and the Indian Ocean. That is very cool because you can actually like see, like you can see the, the two waterfronts meeting and it's, it's wow. just spectacular. There's like a nice lighthouse where you can, where you can check out the two oceans meeting. Um, your part of the country is so beautiful, man. But like all of Australia, like talk about Uluru. I think that's like one of the most underrated places in the world. Some people might know it as Ailes Rock, but like, you know, Uluru is the Australian name. That place, like unless you've seen it live, you cannot understand the majesty of it because, you know, like with, with, with some things in the world, pictures don't do it justice. And Uluru is one of these things. And, you know, like it's a sacred site to the Aboriginal people. So you're only allowed to photograph it from one side. So they're kind of like with the moon, there is a side to Uluru that nobody has ever seen unless you've been there alive. And that other side of it is just spectacular. Like the formations in, in the rock and everything. Like you can understand, like it's almost like an, you know, it brings you down to earth. The, the the experience of being like in the middle of Australia, being in the Australian desert, being so far away from, from the nearest town. Like, um, and yeah, like it really, I don't know. Like I really appreciate the, the whole Aboriginal belief system. And some people just, you know, probably just regard them as, I don't know, like dumb cavemen and they are not civilized and they're Aboriginal people, like whatever. Um, they have it figured out in a way, you know, like, I mean, life and just like being 
not just connected to nature, but being one with Mother Nature and cherishing your land and, um, you know, like regarding your land as something holy rather than just in the Western world, you think of land as that's just a resource. I can do whatever the fuck I want with land. Like if there's a forest and I need some wood to chop it up and build a house, I'm just going to chop down the entire forest and don't think about it twice. And, um, you know, Australia is just like such a, such a unique place. I, I feel like it's, um, I don't know, like it, since it's like kind of the end of the world or, and, and it's so far away, like from, from a distance point of view, so far away to all the other continents, I feel it's like the, the last continent where you can actually experience life and nature the way it's supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? Before like yeah. everything got um, all all civilized and industrial revolution and all that, that. So it's very pure. Like you can have a lot of pure experiences with nature in Australia. And if, especially if you're in the desert, like it doesn't matter which direction you would travel. You can go for a couple of days without ever seeing another city, you know? Yeah. Wow. It's like even... You can, uh, I know the drive from like Perth to Melbourne is like five days. And between that, you're seeing one city. That's five yeah. days with just one city. Um, and that's, and the minimum from Perth, it's a three and a half hour flight to the nearest city. Yeah. It's, um, and it's like, if you want to take that drive from, from Perth to Melbourne, you got to cross a section of the country, which is called the Nullarbor Plain, yeah. which goes on straight like the ballpark is like 2000 something kilometers. Like it is ridiculous. Like um, I remember like the moment when I took the turn to the right and then my navigational system told me, continue on this road for like 1,800 kilometers. <laughs> there is no left turn. There is no right turn. It's just like the long stretch across like the Arctic ocean and the road just continues on straight, straight, straight. So you can be on that one road for pretty much like two and a half or three days. That's how long it takes you to traverse it because there's a speed limit in most of Australia, yeah. which is like 100 or 110 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Yeah. To all my German peeps out there, like on the German Autobahn, you're supposed to drive 130 <laughs> or faster. Yeah. You're not allowed to go faster than 110 in Australia. It drives so. me insane, dude. I don't even want to talk to you about fucking Australian drivers, dude. Oh, I remember like when I when I went into the Northern Territory and I had researched the roads and everything before I took the long trip. But one thing I hadn't researched is that the tempo limit in the Northern Territory is different because over there it is 130 kilometers. And I remember driving up to that big sign. At this point, you know, I had driven for weeks and weeks and weeks at the slow speed of 100 or 110 <laughs> and all of a sudden i see this big sign coming up and it says 130 and like i marked out i lost my mind 130 yes i can go fast now <laughs> oh fucking hell that's hilarious jack well we live in this country and we have and he's, he's experienced more than we have and I'm only two years younger than him. It's still, I've never been on the Nullar Ball plane. Maybe one day, Jack, you and I can go for a little boys trip. My dad's always, my dad's always talking about going across the Nullar Ball because obviously we've got family over east. Like it's just me and my dad here. I always like, he's like, oh, because I'm not, I'm not good with flying. And he's like, oh, well, we're going to be going over to, to Ichuka, which is this little country town in Victoria, which is beautiful, by the way. It's on the uh, 
border of uh, Victoria and New South Wales. Shout out to I doubt anyone from Uchuka is listening to this. Um, <laughs> so it's like, um, there's always a situation. It's always the same conversation every time it goes over. It's just like, were you going to come over with me or are you going to like stay home? And I always stay home because I just hate flying. But he's always just said, well, if you want to drive across the Nullarbor plane, just let me know. And you I know that I still to want to do, do that one day. I want to do it one day. You one have day. to do it. It's, yeah. especially, especially if you are the one driving the vehicle, it is meditative in a way. you got to be careful that you don't doze off because if you do, you're going to end up, you know, like driving into the ocean, basically. You're just like 100 or 200 meters from, from the ocean at any point in time driving through or across the Nellabor. But, you know, it's just like, it's meditative. I loved it. It was just a couple of days of just driving straight and it's, it's hypnotic in a way. And you are dealing with the Arctic wind the entire time massive arctic wind you know so you got to steer the wheel like into the other direction um so that the wind doesn't blow you off the highway so yeah it's, it's unique oh, man you should do that never even thought about that <laughs> yeah jack well the next time your dad offers you jack you know don't think of it like, oh i have the house to myself i'll get some girls over oh well go yeah. go go over to, go over to victoria okay bro okay the girls yeah, can I need to anyway, because my, my grandparents are getting old. My dad's getting old. I'd like to actually do that with my dad before he, you know, do it. Hits the. You uh, should. You should. Because yeah. I think that'd be good. It'd be good five days. But anyway. Anyway, I guess it's, is it time now, Jack, for five second frenzy? Yeah, go ahead. Go okay. On. Have you, have you, have you let Alex know what five second frenzy is or we bring it on on the, on the. I've always thought you've sprung it on people. I, I always spring on people and I'm springing on you right now here, Alex. Thumbtack Jack. It's called Five Second Frenzy. You have five seconds to answer each question. Even if you break the five second rule, it's okay. You won't get in trouble, but it's about your favorite this, your favorite that. It should be easy. Um, you're not a 60 plus year old wrestler who has a hard time answering things in five seconds. So you should be okay. Uh, <laughs> so here we go. First question Five Second Frenzy. Who is your favorite wrestler? Past or present? Of all time. Ooh. Uh, if you go to America, it would be Owen Hart. If you go to Japan, it would be Hayabusa. Very nice. Uh, I, I know this is a tough one, but over the years, who would you say is your favorite opponent? I would say Masada. Masada and Drake Younger. I really always enjoyed working those guys. And Danny Havoc as well. Excellent, excellent. Uh, if you could pick one match, I think I know, might know the answer, but who? what was your favorite match you ever performed in? That would be against Masada. We mentioned that match in the interview. That's the first match we had against each other in Germany in September of 2009. People can go check that out at the uh, on, on WXW now, their streaming service. They have that match in like a best of Thumbtack Jack match compilation. That was fantastic. Texas Deathmatch. Oh, that was so much fun. Excellent. We're definitely going to check that out at some point. Uh, we're kind of moving away from the usual format of Five Second Friends because we're throwing some ones that we, we don't usually throw in because this is just topical to you. But what is your favorite deathmatch weapon to use? Ooh, interesting question. I would probably have to say syringes but like that would be like in kayfabe the character thumbtack jab um i don't know if i can nail it down to a specific gimmick like it would always be something you know like 
getting a big reaction out of the crowd. If you can do that with any type of gimmick, get a big reaction out of the crowd without hurting yourself, hurt yourself a little, get a big reaction. Um, I think whenever you can do that, that's that's pretty cool. I'm trying to think of like anything unique that I have have done that people probably have never heard of before, but yeah, whatever. I'll I'll go with syringes. Just stab <laughs> the motherfuckers. <laughs> stab them in the feet. It's, not, it's, a, it's 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 the visual, man. It's the visual. People hate needles. It's a phobia. That's it. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. Everybody can relate. Everybody hates going exactly. to the dentist. <laughs> uh, the next one was the favorite deathmatch stipulation. So for like a full match, what was your favorite stipulation of a deathmatch? Yeah, I would go for the Texas deathmatch if you apply the classical rules. The old school rules like I did with Masada, where it's you pin the guy or you submit the guy and then he has 10 seconds to get up. I think that is a fantastic concept. You can have so many falls and create so much drama with those rules. My least favorite would be no ropes barbed wire. I hated those. I can imagine. imagine. Okay, guess what? No more wrestling talk from here on. The fav- What is your favorite book? Oh, uh, ooh, that's a tough one. I can show you actually the last book that I uh, read. I read it on a trip um, on, a, on a train ride. It's about the dream time. <laughs> nice. The Australian dream time. So it's a lot of, you know, like Aboriginal stuff. It's, it's a small book, you know, like it's just, <laughs> it's 40 pages, but I felt like I can easily read that. Uh, so, so I'm just going to pick that. And, you know, there are stories about kangaroos and fish and whatnot. Um, <laughs> dream time. <laughs> nice. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, moving away from books to your favorite TV show. Ooh, like a series? Hmm. Part of me wants to say Seinfeld. Part of me wants to say Lost. But I'm going to go with Little House on the Prairie. I kid you not. I love that show with Michael Lenton. <laughs> we talked a lot about, you know, like just the vastness of landscapes and this Wild West feeling. You know, this is an old show from like the 70s with Laura Ingalls. People probably remember her with the uh, two ponytails and whatnot. Um <laughs> That's a, that's a lovely show. Like my girlfriend and I, we watch that as a ritual every Sunday morning. That is like our, you know, safe haven. You know, like Little House on the Prairie, the world was still all right. That was before electricity and everything. It was a it was a simpler life. I think that's tremendous. So so everyone out there that's watched the podcast, Thumbtack Jack, uh, Deathmatch Legend, uh, favorite favorite TV show, Little House on the Prairie, and Sabu's was um, uh, the Real Housewives of whatever city it was. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> I see a theme here. Uh, okay, favorite film. Ooh, um, all time it would have to be Back to the Future. If you would ask me which part of the trilogy, that has changed throughout the years. When I was a child, it was the first part. When I was a teenager, I loved the second part the most. And right now I'm getting old. I love the third part with the Wild West. Um, If I can take like, uh, if I can mention like a different one, like with a different genre, it would be Stay. That's a movie with... um, Ryan Gosling that a lot of people have not heard about that was shortly before he started to become like a real famous celebrity so it's like with uh, him Ryan Gosling and Ewan McGregor and I think it's Naomi Watts in the female leading role 
that is a fantastic drama about a 21-year-old guy played by a young Ryan Gosling who wants to kill himself and announces it to his shrink and says, like, I'm going to kill myself on my birthday in three days. Right. Interesting. I haven't seen it, but I'll have to check that out. Um, favorite musical artist or band? I would have to say Shinedown. I really love them. Um, you know, alternative rock, post-grunge type of band. Um, I actually even, I've followed them throughout their entire career and I already fell in love with them in the early 2000s, ever before they played, um, before they ever played in Europe. And I was actually there alive when they played their very first gig in Europe. And it was just like me and 20 other guys in attendance. Like they were the first act on, <laughs> on one of the days of a festival. Okay. So most people were still sleeping, but to me, it was like, that's my main event. That's Shinedown, the guys from, you know, Jacksonville, Florida. I love them. And I've excellent, met them. Like, they are terrific guys. I, I think they actually like kind of remember me every time I see them. <laughs> oh, you're the wrestler dude, right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I knew you'd have a good taste in music because I believe you're down with the sickness, my friend. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, moving away from the arts now, favorite food? Wow, this is going to be a lame answer, but it's just your typical wrestler answer. Just like, give me a chicken and some veggies and rice and I'm fine. Grilled chicken yeah. all the way, man. Very yeah. nice. Uh, favorite followed, place? Followed, oh. pardon, followed by yeah. kangaroo. Like, I actually love oh, the wow. taste of kangaroo meat. It is lean. It is cheap if you buy it in Australia because kangaroos are a plague in Australia. Yeah. And like a lot of Australians look at me like, oh, you eat that stuff? And I'm like, yeah, sure. It's delicious. Uh, kangaroo is fantastic. It costs like 20, yeah, it costs like 25 euros to get some good kangaroo meat in Germany. And it costs like five bucks to get half a kilo in Australia. <laughs> so nom, 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 I just eat that all the time. <laughs> I have never tried kangaroo. Oh, Jack, it's what? really, it is really good, bro. It is it's, not a, good. it's not a common thing to like, you know, have kangaroo for dinner over here, believe it or not. So, um, you know what? I'm going to, it's a mission of mine to try it. Dude, try you it. just got to go to Woolworths, bro. It's there. Really? There's, a, there's a whole really? section. There's a whole section next yeah. to the turkey. There's kangaroo. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, duck is right next to it as well. Yeah, you'll I'm find it. Try there, it. Bro. I'm trying it. Excellent. Cool. Uh, back to Alex. Uh, favorite place to eat on the road? Oh, it's a long time since I've been on the road. Uh, I would have to say Starbucks. I don't eat at Starbucks, but just give me some coffee and I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Nice. Uh, I know you said earlier um, at one stage in your life you, you, you weren't drinking, but maybe you drink now. What would be your favorite alcoholic beverage? Yeah, I drink like once or twice a year. Very, very rarely. If I do, I like the taste of red wine. Nice. Actually, my favorite brand is an Australian red wine, <laughs> which you can get <laughs> over here in Germany. And uh, I like the taste of whiskey as well, but those are pretty much the only two alcoholic beverages that I like the taste of. Fair enough. And I drink red wine as well, although I've been drinking beer tonight, but uh, red wine is uh, a a favorite of mine. Uh, Second last one, Alex, is the naughtiest one. It's your favorite female body part. Ooh, well... If I gotta be honest, I have to say tits. <laughs> my my girlfriend is not gonna like that answer. So uh, no, I'm I'm gonna pedal back and I'm gonna say uh, the hair. I, I like nice hair. And, you know. <laughs> 
Okay. Nice. Hair, hair is the official answer, but unofficially. Tits. Okay. <laughs> and the final one here on Five Second Frenzy, Alex, is your favorite curse word. Ooh. Uh, verfickte Scheiße. I don't know. That, 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 that's kind of like some, some German cursing for you, which is like <laughs> shit and fuck all mixed into like one angry. <laughs> verfickte Scheiße. <laughs> Excellent. I'll I never, can tell yeah, you, there you go. That's the first time we've had that answer on the I'll show. I'll never say that in Germany. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so funny though. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Thumbtack Jack, what a what a privilege it was to have this opportunity to speak with you here tonight uh, and today for yourself. I know Jack himself was was very excited to talk to you because he's been a fan of yours over the years. And you know. I think this might have been one of the best interviews we've ever had. You were so intelligent and well-spoken and your answers were so meaningful. And as per usual, Jack, you know, I always say this every time, but this rings so true. And you know all about this, Alex. We live in the most isolated city in the world. So you had that reach all the way over here to have fans and people here that appreciated everything that you did in the wrestling business. So that means a lot to reach to the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia. So we just hope that you feel like uh, proud of everything you accomplished in your life so far. Man, thank you for the high praise. That is really fantastic to be able to reach people at the other end of the world. And yeah, I guess right now I'm just going to have to grill myself some nice kangaroo meat. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Excellent, bro. Well, thank you again. And, and hopefully when the pandemic's over, we can all meet up in person and, and, and we yeah. can eat some kangaroo together. No. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's Thank you to Thumbtack Jack. My name's California Fury. This was the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. And we will see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>